This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the show. It's Thursday, January the 25th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26, so the chilly temperatures persist, although not as bad or as cold as it was yesterday. Certainly on the Great Northern Peninsula and parts of the West Coast, the weather has deteriorated noticeably. There's some travel advisories in place, so be careful and cautious if and when you have to be out on the roads on the West Coast or up the Northern Peninsula. Basketball fans, the Newfoundland Rogues back in action tonight at the Mary Brown Center, taking on the KW Titans, who have a really solid team. We had Coach Jerry Williams on the program yesterday talking about the style of ball you can anticipate if you go catch a Rogues game. They have a huge club. I mean, average height for this basketball league, 6'6". Six, six. They got two seven-footers in the lineup, so they're playing some big ball. All right, good news for Paralympians. And, of course, we've been represented in the Paralympic Games, uh, Olympics and otherwise, in fine fashion, fine stead by Liam Hickey, Katarina Roxon. So in the past, Olympians, uh, not Paralympians, but Olympians would be paid cash for bringing home medals. And now the Paralympians will be getting the exact same treatment, which is excellent news, long overdue. So like Liam Hickey's got a couple of Olympic medals, no cash to show for it. And of course, when you speak with Liam, it's all about playing for the team, playing for the country, playing for pride. But now Paralympians, a gold medal will get you $20,000. A silver gives $15,000 and $10,000 for a bronze medal out of a $14 million pot, so excellent decision there for sure. Alright, quick check in on the Briar Playdowns. So it's been ongoing. Draw 4 took place yesterday evening. The McNeil Lambswood team is 4-0, four, four oh, so they're at the top of the chart, followed by Young, Simmons, Smith, Walter, Skeynes, Tipple, Thompson, Hancock. So nine teams competing to go to the Briar, which happens in a couple of months. I think it's in Regina. I should have looked that up. Anyway, so of course Team Guzhu, defending champions, will be representing themselves as Team Canada, and we'll see who comes out on top in the Briar Playdowns here provincially. The Scotties Playdowns begin today, so keep an eye for that. A couple of quick ones before we get to you. So it was on this date in 1991 that Brett Hall scored 50 goals in 50 games. It was the second time in his career. Only five NHLers have ever scored 15-50. Of course, the first was uh, Maurice Richard, then Mike Bossy. They both did it once. Wayne Gretzky did it three times. Lemieux did it only once, but Hall did it twice. It was on this date that he got 15-50 in 1991. And the story that broke yesterday, and this was always going to be the case, Five former junior team members of the 2018 Team Canada that represented uh, played at the World Juniors. Five of them have been told to surrender to London, Ontario police to face charges of sexual assault. It's an awful story. You know, there's some people who have been moaning the fact that we're not getting any comment, whether it be from the London police themselves or the government officials and or the NHL. But, of course, until we find out more information about exactly what the charges entail, I don't imagine anyone is going to be offering any comment. One concern that I've seen voiced, now four of them play in the NHL, one of them is playing in Europe, I can't remember if it's Finland or Switzerland, or Sweden, pardon me. Anyway, they've all requested indeterminate leaves of absence from their clubs and has been granted. 
They all, though, say that it's a mental health-related concern. Now, of course, that very well may be the case. I don't know if that's just one of those click a, uh, click a box to, you know, put some sort of caveat associated with the leave, but they'll be facing some serious charges. Apparently, there's going to be a news conference held by the London, Ontario Police Department on the 5th of February, and we'll find out more. Anyway. Uh, happy Robbie Burns Day to those who celebrate. Of course, the makeup of the population of this province is predominantly British. And there's, of course, pockets of Irish, pockets of French culture. And yes, there are some Scots around. So Robbie Burns Day, of course, celebrating the birth of Robert Burns 265 years ago today in, ni- in 1759. Known as the Plowman Poet or the National Bard. Uh, Scottish television voted him the greatest Scot ever, even over the likes of William Wallace. So many people will be familiar with the name Robbie Burns. And his poetry is held near and dear to those who study the art and of course the Scottish text of the poem All Lang Syne leading to the song of course that we sing on New Year's Eve so happy Robbie Burns Day and it comes with celebrations held by sporting clubs and universities and yes government officials when they have the uh, scheduled and the very structured Robbie Burns Day supper so apparently what happens is you get piped in, of course, very Scottish, of course. Then you sit down for the traditional Scottish soup, potato soup or otherwise, and then it's a feed of haggis. Dave, have you ever had haggis? People really turn their nose up at it, of course. It's, you know, served in the sheep's belly itself. I've had it just once, and it's really quite nutty, and it's not that bad. The texture takes some getting used to, but happy Robbie Burns Day to those of you. Scottish origin and or celebrated period. Okay. So given the call, there's been huge demand on the grid. And you hear from Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, they've been able to keep up with the demand. Obviously, that's the very good news. And so there's apparently even an, an additional 500 megawatts of reserve power. So if and when there's any further complications with the sources of electricity, we still do need to get some updates, though, on a variety of fronts. Well, while we look at the 2041 issue, you know that I'm quite enamored with that and I'm very curious about it. But we still need some updates about that one unit that's giving hydro trouble at Muscrat Falls, whether or not it has to be dismantled, whether or not it's impacted other units. We need to know if there's been any improvements at Holy Road itself, because I'm trying to understand how they're being able to keep up with the demand, which is great. But all those concerns we've heard. And all the while, we're transmitting power to Nova Scotia via the Maritime Link. Then, of course, it's the couple of outstanding issues that really have not been finalized. When we talk about the most recent rate mitigation as they call it, the rate mitigation plan, some $5.2 billion worth. An additional billion dollars in the federal loan guarantee, a billion dollar loan, and some $3.2 billion associated with Tyburnia assets. That has not yet been firmly and finally finalized. Then when you talk about some of the moving parts regarding 2041 and the possibility for Gull Island, and I've read some of the stories to you from Hydro-Quebec and their need for additional power, but when it comes to Gull, remember one thing that has not been included in the conversation frequently is the fact that the Indonesian, given the fact that that $5.2 billion rate mitigation plan impacts their revenue from Muskrat Falls to the tune of about a billion dollars, they say until that is addressed and dealt with, there will be no procedure or no process that includes the development of Gull Island. So put that out there for your consideration. All right, that got there. Then the price of fuels, up pretty much across the board. The one source of fuel that has really seen very little move up or down over the years, over the past, uh, rec- the recent past, pardon me, is propane. But propane's on the biggest hike, up 4.2 cents a litre. Gas up 3.2 cents a litre. Diesel up 1.3 cents a litre. Stove oil up about a cent per litre. So there's the update and the so-called bad news on that front. All right. So the Bank of Canada. 
there's some 2.2 million mortgages that are going to have to be renegotiated in the next couple of years. So for variable mortgage holders, the Bank of Canada's move has been a huge issue hitting the pocketbook. You know, I saw a headline this morning where a BC couple saw their mortgage increase some $2,700 a month. So, you know, again, I don't have any sort of formal background in monetary policy, but you have to ask a couple of pretty big questions here. What's it going to take? Now, inflation did increase from 3.1% to 3.4% last month. But where's the pain for the economy? The economy is pretty stagnant. I mean, GDP has not increased in the recent past, and we do know that it's really pummeling Canadians where it hurts in their bank accounts and their pocketbook. And when you look at one of the key contributing factors to inflation, it's said, even by the Bank of Canada, that about 50% of the inflation, a full 1.7 percentage points, is directly associated with shelter costs. A large part of that, of course, is mortgage payments. So. What's the actual outcome here for you and I? It's one thing for the Governor of Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem, to be talking about interest rates and how it's going to hurt Canadians before it so-called helps Canadians with the reduction in inflationary pressure. But if half of it is uh, directly related to housing, then how does that argument get squared? It kind of seems like the higher interest rates that we're paying now are not helping inflation at all. We've heard from economists across the board that even any inflation, uh, pardon me, interest rate hikes takes 12, 18 months before they actually have any appreciable impact on lowering inflation. But housing is 50% of it. It kind of feels like the Bank of Canada is contributing to the inflationary problems that you and I are facing. I don't imagine Mr. Macklem is suffering too badly, but I know the vast majority of folks listening to this program this morning, these interest rate numbers are an absolute pummeling problem. You want to take it on? You know what to do. Also, there's been a, just this past December, there was a regional economic development roundtable and task force. We're anticipating a call from Rob Nolan, who's the CEO at Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador. Obviously, the key to long-term sustainability, viability, and prosperity is for the economy to be improved in many parts of the province, you know, certainly some of the more rural, remote parts of the province. That's going to take a lot of cooperation. One of the key areas that we're going to try to address with Mr. Nolan is a lot of the work that had been done, you know, by some 70 organizations and people contributing from academia and municipal leaders and the, the like, is a lot of the focus was on the potential for regionalization to be a formal structured policy led by the Department of Municipal Affairs, but of course that's gone by the wayside. So I wonder what that's meant for how the focus and effort they put forward leading up to that final decision coming from the department that it will not be uh, a key feature of this province to move into the county system or whatever the case may be, but it was poo-pooed in many corners. So. That's that. And, of course, some of the economy and the reliance on in rural Newfoundland will continue to be the fishery. Still waiting for some updates, and I think time is drawing close that we're going to have to hear something, top, a couple of areas. The whole price-setting panel issue, that has got to be figured out to its suite. We're also anticipating, on behalf of the shrimp license holders on the south and the west coast, that are looking to get out. They want their licenses bought out. Why? The obvious reasons. Cost to operate way up, catch rates way down. Unmanageable, unsustainable. So that they're trying to replace their interest in the fishery regarding shrimp with redfish. The federal minister, Diane Leboutier, has said that there will be a piece of the pie to be shared outside simply the province of Nova Scotia, but I would imagine on behalf of those license holders on the south and the west coast, they need that info really shortly and soon. Okay. I've heard a lot of feedback about one of the programs that's come to the province. It's already in Alberta, Ontario, and B.C., and it's called Spaces Shared. 
some people are really worried about this. Okay, the basics are an international student may be able to rent a room in a senior's home, not and it doesn't have to be senior, in someone's home, they will contribute to some daily chores and get a break in the price of renting the room. I think people are really confused about what this really means. For starters, and importantly, nobody's going to be made or told that they have to do this. It's just not part of it at all. This is a voluntary issue. There is a pretty long list of surveys and vetting and criminal background checks and compatibility issues that will be addressed. And yes, the rent income will become taxable income. It may indeed have an impact on your guaranteed income supplement. It may have an impact on your provincial drug card. So there's lots of things to consider, but no one's going to be told to have to do this. So if people are worried about their safety and what have you, then this is not for you. But for others who would like some help around the house, maybe some companionship, uh, sharing some of the daily duties and chores, it might be excellent. So just take it upon your to have that conversation with your family and your friends and investigate it if you're interested. But if you're not, just don't do it. So I do have a, uh, several people via email saying, I will not be forced to do this or that. And you shouldn't be, and you won't be. This is not going to be mandatory for anybody in the province. It's just something that you might want to consider. On that front, when we talk about bringing in additional revenue, Inside the government's five-point housing plan, trying to deal with the housing shortage, one of the issues that really seems like a win-win for both renters and or people who own property is the portal to apply for some financial support to build a secondary basement suite or a backyard suite. Now the government incentive program is open for application. So basically, you'll have the opportunity to apply for a forgivable, a forgivable loan up to $40,000 to cover 50% of renovation costs. As long as the unit is rented below market rates for at least five years, those loans will be forgivable. So it might be a real win for many. Now, it might be difficult to come up with the, the contractor and all the headache and frustration with doing that kind of work around your house, but that additional revenue side, increasing your property value, it will help in the rental crunch that we're experiencing, the very low vacancy rates. So that portal for application is now open, open if that's something that is intriguing to you. And when it comes to sharing a space as a senior and bringing in a renter, and people will have worries about abuse and their safety. Okay. I suppose it's completely worthwhile to remind folks to be mindful of the issue which is far too common and prevalent in society is the different forms of elder abuse. They come in many forms. Emotional abuse is probably the most common, but physical, psychological, sexual, social, financial. So for the seniors in your sphere, your friends and your family, your community members in their senior years, be mindful that these things can happen. And there will be a stigma of embarrassment. So maybe some seniors who are experiencing these types of abuse will not speak out or look for help. So let's just make sure we're mindful and knowing that it's happening. What's really concerning and troubling regarding these types of abuse, that oftentimes it's at the hands of people they know and people who supposedly are supposed to love them, especially in the financial world. So keep an eye out for those types of issues. Uh, also, we're expecting a call from uh, Michael Harvey, the province's privacy commissioner. It is Data Privacy Week, and the focus this, uh, this go-around and the focus of this conversation today and over the course of the next three years is the protection of privacy data and your identity for the country's youth. So looking forward, as usual, to speak with Michael Harvey. He's always a wealth of knowledge, and we'll speak with him, I think, coming up very shortly. Also, a couple of quick ones. You know, I, I mentioned yesterday that we saw it in the news, and it's made national waves, is that Liberal MP for Avalon, Ken McDonald, who, of course, has 
run afoul of his party, the federal liberals, a couple of times, notably by voting against the party regarding carbon pricing. He, you don't hear this very often. Now, it has made no friends inside the world of the federal caucus, even though Mr. McDonald and others are saying that members of parliament representing the Liberal Party are concerned with the polling numbers associated directly with Prime Minister Trudeau and his popularity, or lack thereof, the negative poll numbers he's seeing. So Mr. McDonald, maybe not making any friends in the Liberal Party, but probably making some friends in his uh, Avalon riding, He's saying that there's a distinct amount of, and this is his words, hatred for the prime minister out there, making reference to his best before date has probably come and gone, and it's time for a leadership review. In the same breath, though, Mr. McDonald says when he was first elected back in 2015, he attributes much of that voting success to the prime minister. But, you know, the shine has rubbed off, I think it's fair to say, so you wonder whether or not that's going to get any additional traction, whether or not we'll hear from any other Liberal MPs and or notable Liberal supporters around the country about this leadership review. I just think it's so interesting that Mr. McDonald is willing and wanting to put that out there very publicly. And I think we tried to invite him on yesterday, did we, Dave? And he's always welcome. I know Mr. McDonald listens to this show uh, frequently. And if you're listening this morning, Ken, you're more than welcome to join us live on the air. And one of the biggest stories in the country, curiously, I never know what's going to get any traction. I pique the interest of potential callers. But we can also talk about the federal court ruling by Judge Mosley regarding the invocation of the Mercies Act. He's said that it was unreasonable, and there's a variety of different quotes that we used from uh, Judge Mosley yesterday, and we can dig into that if that's something you're, you're interested in. Okay, we're on Twitter. Oh, I think we're also going to have the conversation with a retired pharmacist this morning regarding universal pharmacare. And as mentioned yesterday, whether or not that most recent court ruling has shook the supply and confidence agreement between the NDP and the Liberals remains to be seen, or will they stay firm and steadfast with this agreement to try to get over the finish line something that's near or dear to the NDP, and that, of course, is universal Universal Pharmacare. I'm not suggesting it's good, bad, or indifferent, but we can talk about the numbers from the Parliamentary Budget Office, which is a really critical source of information that I use frequently. So we can dig into some of the numbers, and for the retired pharmacist, be interesting to hear his perspective. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Oh, there we go. Daryl Kendall, retired pharmacist, is going to kick us off to talk Universal Pharmacare right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number three and say good morning to our retired pharmacist, Daryl Kendall, good morning, Daryl. You're on the air. Uh, good morning. Uh, yeah, I uh, heard you in, in your preamble yesterday about universal pharmacare, and it's something that uh, has been talked about for a number of years. And I actually wrote a letter to, can't remember who it was at the time, in the, in the feds. Uh, we're actually not that far from universal pharmacare now. Um, why I wrote the letter a couple of years ago, some NDP talking head said 45% of Canadians have no drug coverage. And and for over a decade, at the end of the night, I would do, a, you know, you do your sales analysis to record your sales for the night. And, you know, it goes line by line, what, what you got from Blue Cross, what you got from government seniors, you know, uh, uh, social services, et cetera. And I said, it's not 45%. So what I used to do is I would take a random date, you know, April 22nd, 2018, and I'd run out the sales analysis, and I'd go down through, and it was pretty consistent out of every 100 prescriptions, there would be between four and eight prescriptions not attached to any, in other words, someone paid full price. And that's not four to eight people, because someone could have had three prescriptions. So another figure I heard was 14% of people uh, – didn't have had zero coverage. And that makes sense to me because that would suggest that about 10% of prescriptions are not being filled because the people can't afford it. 
So, so start to start off, I, I'm absolutely in favor of universal pharmacare. However, uh, governments uh, tend to, when they get a, a program dangled in front of them, um, they tend to go overboard and, and build ivory towers and complicated situations. And so I'll go back to those four to eight prescriptions that are not covered. It usually f- fell into two camps. The first camp was a senior citizen who, uh, I hate to say the word too wealthy, but didn't qualify for GIS so they don't get a drug card. So that would be one, one way. But the more problematic one was uh, during Danny Williams' government, they extended the plan, what we call Plan E for uh, social assistance. Uh, they extended it out to people making, and that, now I have been in the dispensary for five years, so the numbers could be different now. But at the time, if you made up to $45,000, you were entitled to a drug card and uh, with a sliding scale. Um, copay. So if you're making it eighteen, nineteen thousand dollars a year, you had about an eight percent copay, and then it got kind of ridiculous when you got the forty-five. I can remember seeing, if I recall correctly, a ninety-three percent copay. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so simply, so you know, like I say, governments try to complicate things to death. Simply, all that they got to do is call the provincial government. Everything's in the database, and say what. Is it costing you right now in its present form, you know, the seniors plan, the assure plan, the social assistance plan, what's it costing you now? And what will it cost you with a, if everyone's covered with a copay of five bucks, which is what universal uh, pharmacare is proposing, a $5 copay. So if the government comes back and says $27 million, they say, okay, we're going to add $27 million to the national uh, health care transfer funds. You know, it's simple. It's done. And it leaves current formularies in place. It leaves special authorization protocols in place. There's no relearning curve. Everything goes on. It's seamless. Easy peasy. You don't need extra employees. You don't need an office. You don't. It's done. Because this plan apparently is going to cost $15 billion. Now, well, the most the recent numbers from the Parliamentary Budget Office says would cost federal and provincial governments $11.2 billion in the first year, $13.4 billion in five years. And the breakdown of who does not have coverage, excluding hospital drugs, the total prescription drug spending uh, in 21-22 was $36.6 billion. In that, inside that world, 46% were covered by governments, various levels of provincial and federal governments. Then there was a 40% covered by private insurers, and 14%, as you rightfully point out, paid out of pocket. I would imagine if anything like this comes to pass, it'll be means tested, just like the dental plan. So for people well, sure. able to avail of the dental plan is if you make a net family income of $90,000 or less, and if you yep. make $70,000 or less, there's no copay. So I imagine if this ever happens, it'll be very similarly structured. Well, and so that brings me to the people that are left out, say the guy that's making $50,000 a year and shut out of the plan, well, just simply raise that threshold to 90000 because chances are if you're making $90,000 a year, you've got a benefit package at work. But now, I'm glad you just brought those figures. That, that'll bring me into the biggest issue I have with this. Okay, so you make an announcement. January 1st, 2025, universal health care. And what will happen then is that there'll be champagne corks popping in a lot of boardrooms because... What's unique about, you know, the, the drug part of it anyway, and dental too, is that right now we got companies like Walmart, Suncor, Valley Inco and stuff paying for prescription time to half of their employees. What are we going to do? Tell them, hey, you know what? Thanks for your billions of dollars, but we don't need it anymore. I mean, that's insane. Right it is. Now, right now, these companies are subsidizing health care in Canada. 
So what are you going to do? Say to them, you know, you know, thank you for your billions of dollars, but we're going to download this impact now on taxpayers. Like, you know, it, it boggles your mind. You, you've had to be the leftiest of, of the left, left, you know, you know to <laughs> to not support that. And, and I mean, you know, and uh, basically you're, you're you're just kicking money away and just downloading it on the taxpayer. Third problem I got with it okay. is that you know your your listeners here today have heard the dreaded words of the pharmacy. This is not covered by your card. You know, we a provincial formula is probably the lowest common denominator of a formula of what's covered. Uh, we got tons of guys and ladies going, you know, to camp jobs in Alberta and, and Boise Bay and these places. And they've got gold-plated benefits packages, you know. And I know one plan. I won't name the company. As long as the the, the item's got a drug identification number, and the doctor writes on a prescription, like for instance, if they write Tylenol, Benadryl, cough syrup, et cetera, et cetera, it's covered, hundred percent. Now you got to tell them, okay, you don't have that anymore. This stuff is this is not covered. That's not covered, and you're gonna have a lot of unhappy people. I mean, to me, you can. It's all they got to do because every province has got some sort of plan with a sliding scale um, or set fee for lower income. But like I said, just raise that threshold from forty-five, fifty, whatever it is now. Raise it up to ninety or a hundred, so that everyone's included. And. These are uh, concerns that have been voiced by many, but of course, sometimes like you, as a retired pharmacist, with all your lived experience, I really welcome your uh, your opinion and your perspective this morning. And you make good points regarding private coverage versus public coverage. One of the comments that came from the Canadian Life and Health Insurance Association was pretty distinct. It said a single-payer program will spend unnecessary billions to disrupt existing workplace workplace health benefits plans that are already making a large number of prescription drugs more affordable for millions. So you're both yes. right. That's where it's got to be very carefully crafted. So I think your summary suggestion of just increase the uh, income threshold will be the catch-all that we need. If you currently have uh, dental coverage provided by an insurer or your employer, you can't avail of that uh, national dental program. I think it should be exactly the same thing if and when a universal pharmacare ever comes to play because we can't let employers and private insurance companies that have been reaping huge premiums from the general public, we can't let them off the hook. I mean, they still no. have to remain in place, so it really is going to boil down to a means test. Well, yes, and you know, then you got the fear of, say, a company, uh, you know, saying, "All right, uh, we got a drug plan coming in, so we're going to drop your benefits." However, uh, a lot of times those benefits are negotiated by a union between the employer and the union, so there's some protection there. Plus, the fact that you know, the, the, a, a drug plan is usually a part of a basket of benefits within that within that premium that you're paying. You know, there's chiropractic care, there's disability insurance, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, like I say, governments tend to overthink things and overcomplicate things. I mean, you look at the gun registry, which is supposed to cost $60 million and end up costing over a billion. And this is my fear, that they're going to, you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater, like go to these big companies and say, hey, we don't need your billions of dollars anymore. We're going to we're going to just download it on the taxpayer. And when, you know, and the thing is, the problem, you know, when I hear a figure, like, oh, 45% of Canadians don't have coverage, it's bullcrap. It, it's, it's simply not true. Now, it's not ideal coverage for everybody. Like I say, when someone's facing down, you know, a 90% copay, I mean, that is ridiculous. You know, it's, uh, it, you know, thanks for a little bit of help, but it's not really help. And, uh, you know, just making a flat fee of five bucks, reimburse the provinces for the extra that they have to pay, and we're done. You don't need you don't need office space in downtown Ottawa. You don't need to be flying around in business class, just you know, to 
to negotiate formularies and things like that. It's it's everything's like ninety five percent of it's already in place. You just got to tweak one or two little things. I think you're right. And, you know, I don't know what the number of Canadians that would be benefiting directly from the kind of plan that you suggest or you're talking about. You know, I think in the dental world, it's about 9 million. I would suggest it's probably a very similar number when we talk about uh, pharmacare. Uh, anything else you'd like to add this morning, Daryl? No, that's it. It's just, a, you know, it's frustrating. Like, uh, you know, and I've heard a number of health professionals on over the past year or so of our, our crisis new plan. We've got, we've got too many people writing policy and making decisions that hasn't been in a clinical role in decades and, and they don't really know what's going down on the ground you know like you know i, I hear poor tom osborne makes announcements every you know we're going to do a, a you know a collaborative care clinic in such and such a place i'm thinking oh yeah birds in 7.8 i mean i've heard these announcements for 20 years you know uh same with nurse practitioners so we're going to give them a billing number i've heard that 15 years ago like and you know the, the, the powers that be, you know, the guys that make the decision, like Tom Osborne and Premier Fury, are just getting bad advice. You know, and and same with this, this is my fear with the universal primary care. You got people writing policy that really don't really know what's going on on the ground, and what what the real real problem, what the real numbers are. <laughs> That's probably very, very true. Although I don't know what sort of direct involvement, whether it be the federal health minister, would have in the actual crafting of the policy in the program. They generally kind of come across as representatives or spokespeople for these types of uh, pieces of uh, work that are done by senior bureaucrats, and hopefully there are people that know what they're talking about. I'm trying to remember, oh, Dr. Eric Hoskins. I mean, people like him and that Senate struck committee that looked the most recent look at universal pharmacare, they're the people that have done the legwork. They should be absolutely intimately involved in crafting a plan if one ever comes to pass as opposed to politically motivated you know stick your finger in your mouth see which way the wind's blowing kind of stuff to take the temperature of rooms it's not that it's got to be very very carefully crafted but what scares me is like i read a position paper from a guy named mark andre gagnon uh, to a nih a national institute of health and he's a uh, with the school of public policy at Carleton university and the guy's delusional. Like he said, well, if companies like, you know, if big companies no longer have to pay out, uh, you know, contribute to a drug plan or contribute to paying for prescription drugs, they will raise wages for employees. And I just looked at it and said, buy. I more like buy more self-checkouts. Like, you know, I don't think that's going to happen. And, you know, and that's, and that's the thinking that scares me. Understood. You know? A point well made, Daryl. Appreciate your support uh, on the show this morning. Okay, thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, okay, let's say Dave tells me to go to line seven. Mary, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Hi, Mary. Uh, I'm sorry to bother you, but I'm I'm trying to find out what the, the uh, update is on the traffic there and uh, going through Topsa Road to the Bank of Montreal where, where there was an accident on the outer ring and I'm wondering if the traffic is still backed up. Well, I haven't had a chance to check in on that very recently, but what I will do for you, Mary, is when we go to this break, I'll have the new v- newsroom give me whatever the most recent update they have, and I'll say it right on the air as soon as we come back. How's that? That sounds wonderful, Patty. Thank you so very much for your time, and you have a wonderful day. The same to you, Mary. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So for Brian or Linda or anybody in the newsroom, do you have an update on that particular traffic accident on tops of the road leading into around Bank of Montreal, whether or not the traffic's been cleared up? Get that information from Mary. We'll share it right after this break. Don't go away. 
Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions. Plus, interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. Uh, for Mary's benefit and anyone else who's going to be traveling in that area, we had a couple of calls. Apparently, the traffic is still backed up. First responders are starting to push traffic through. Then I just got an email about five seconds before we came back and said he just drove through there. The accident is cleared up, so they are now starting to reopen the traffic. So, Mary, if you're heading that way, I'd give it another listen to the show for about 15, 20, 30 minutes so that you can make sure you're not caught up in the traffic logjam. Okay, let's roll. Let's go to line number one. Nick, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, I was listening there a few times with uh, one of your, I think it was um, Linda Swain, talking to CAA and uh, other people about um, the airlines and how how they're doing these days. Well, to give you a brief summary, uh, it's been nothing but chaotic from what I've seen on recent trips and from what I'm dealing with personally in uh, courts with Air Canada. Uh, just to give you a summary of what happened to me, I bought a ticket to take my family on vacation last year to uh, Orlando. Anyways, we had a bit of a weather issue with flight here, so Air Canada offered me another flight overnight in Halifax, Halifax to uh, Orlando. So we took it, and uh, we get to uh, Halifax. They said on the phone that they'd pay for our hotel and stuff, which they didn't do. Uh, we had to fight for it, but we still didn't get it, so I paid for it anyway. And uh, anyways, get on the flight next morning, go to Orlando. They bring us to Tampa, and they were supposed to give us another flight from Tampa to Orlando. There was no uh, such thing given to us. We were dropped off in Tampa and basically had to fend for ourselves 200 miles away from the other airport. So basically, uh, you know, we got Air Canada court now for a breach of contract for not taking us to our destination from where we paid for. And uh, they, uh, they're trying to, they're, they're, how do I say, they're playing hardball, and they really don't want, to, uh, want people to do their compensation part. They're really making you fight for it. Uh, no doubt they are. And, you know, they've gone yeah. the extra mile that they're offering vouchers for pennies on the dollar for the compensation that people deserve. And people are sometimes willing to take it because going through the transportation, uh, the Canadian Transportation Agency has been painful for thousands of Canadians. If I remember correctly, last fall, they hit a record high of passenger complaints around 57,000. So obviously the airlines have not rebounded to the t- uh, level of service required. They continue to sell us the tickets, but they're not providing the service. I just flew last week, had a direct flight, got cancelled. Ended up in Halifax four hours. On the way back, sat on the tarmac for an hour and a half before even pushed back from the gate. So there's still persistent problems in the air travel business. Well, for, I'll give you one now here for people. We've noticed every year, same time of year we fly, we do a vacation package down south with the kids for a Christmas gift. And every year we get a thing popping up on our Facebook about uh, our flight delay and stuff like that, about the flight we went on. And uh, to be honest with you, here in St. John's, after speaking to uh, one of the, the flight attendants when I was uh, sitting up in first class there, she uh, was telling me about how St. John's is one of the only airports that are so understaffed. They have two gentlemen. I never knew this until she spoke it to me. She's from another province. And she said she felt so bad for these guys. She said they only has two guys working that does the baggage, does the I guess the detailing of the plane and so forth. Everything that needs to be done with that jet is done by two guys. 
and I my flight recently on AC six eighty five there back um, January seventh. We had a delay of taking off. We were on the plane uh, sitting at the gate for uh, I'd say about an hour and a half. They try to blame it on weather when we fall for a compensation of the delay because we missed our connection. And uh, the captain got on the phone or on the microphone. He all he kept saying was that we've got a bit of a delay because of uh, loading baggage and uh, we've only got two gentlemen down there doing it. So and. The other part of it was the the machine that loads what's called the cans that holds all the luggage. That was broken down. They're towing that out of the way. So, I mean, Air Canada keeps putting this thing called weather on everybody's claims. But yet, what people got to start doing is just go and take a small claims court. Never mind listen to their weather claims. They'll call weather if it's a sunny day. I watched them do it when I was in Dominican. They tried to tell me my flight was delayed, and they said it was due to weather. Meanwhile, the plane was sitting in front of me at the gates, and we were waiting to board it. You know, so uh, people got to understand something. When it comes to these airlines, don't let them away with it because they're getting more negligent by the day. Uh, on the way back from Mexico there, there last week, we were around a 777. They made they canceled the flight because they never had a plane available, which is within their operational uh, means, and so they were on the hook for compensation for over 300 odd passengers on that triple seven. They made us all wait in 32 degree weather from nine o'clock in the morning to 1:30 in the afternoon with no food, no water, and you weren't allowed to leave the lineup to go to a washroom because of the area we were in, waiting for our buses to transport us to a different hotel, and it was just chaos and. Unfortunately, it falls on Air Canada's shoulders because they're the ones, I don't blame the workers on the ground, I really don't, because they're only listening to the ones that are up in the offices that make all these calls, and they're the ones that need to be rechecked. In, in my opinion. Yeah, it's not just time. about flight crew and it's not just about weather. It's about all the staffing at the airports because remember last Christmas, all those vi- pictures we saw from Toronto with the suitcases as far as the eye can see down through the terminal. That wasn't the airline's fault. That was the airport authority's fault. So while so many people were let go, laid off, maybe left the industry, when travel started to rebound, nobody was prepared. Nobody but nobody. You know, I know there's a global shortage of pilots, but that does not mean we can't hire the required number of border security agents does mean we can't require the number of baggage handlers and ticket processors and everybody else inside the airport because it's not just the airlines, it's also the airports. So it has been a bit of a mess. And I think if I remember the numbers correctly, we're about 90% or more recovered from pre-pandemic uh, flight levels, uh, the traffic volume. So it's about time that they kind of get back in line with, you know, it's easy enough to sell me a ticket. It's a little bit more difficult to follow through with the service that you just sold me. Anyway, anything else, Nick, before we say yeah. goodbye? Yeah, just something quick uh, here for everybody in the local St. John's area. My daughter uh, has an app on her phone for that pay and park uh, meters we have downtown. And uh, anyway, she paid for her parking meter at 2.07 in the afternoon, waiting uh, going into work. At 2.12, she got a ticket. And she spoke to the guy that gave the ticket when he was going back around again and he said that's too bad and he sh- she showed on the app that she paid it was the proper plate proper vehicle everything was right there was apparently there was a glitch in the app so now where i'm the owner of the vehicle i gotta waste my time because we took it to the uh, to the supervisor of the enforcement down at city hall and he basically they're just blowing it off they don't want to deal with it they don't want to talk about it even though you got the evidence there that they got a glitch in their system and they even admitted to it they won't uh pull the ticket back we actually got to go through a court system and all the court proceedings just to clear this ticket off 
Like, there should be an easier process seeing how the courts are so backed up down there and how they're wasting court time. Maybe Mayor Breen could uh, probably jump on board and uh, put something in place that if there's a glitch like this, evidence is presented that on the app you got a screenshot with the right plate number, right time, and everything else, and you're getting a ticket four minutes later. I'm sorry. Like, uh, we shouldn't have to waste our time. My daughter is a student full-time. She works full-time. I'm, I'm working full-time. We don't got time to be going on the courthouse over this Mickey Mouse stuff. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Nick. All right. You have a good one, Patty. too. Bye-bye. Uh, just before we get to the break, come back to talk to Paul about ride-sharing, and there's a lot to discuss there. This on behalf of a grade 4 teacher at Bishop Abraham Elementary right here in the city of St. John's. His teacher's name is Perry Doran. The Avalon Celtics have given them a bunch of uh, ice time at the D.F. Barnes Arena, of course, up off uh, just behind Bishop Elementary, but they need a bunch of helmets. So that's the only thing that's holding them up. Uh, of course, I'm familiar with the area. The kids have never had a chance to skate or play hockey, some of the newcomers, so they have a class of 20. Four have skated before, only two have their own gear. So what they need is some helmets. If you have, and these, of course, for grade four students. Last week, we put out the call for helmets for high schoolers, but these are little kids. So the helmets have to be CSA approved with the sticker and the future ex- expiration date on the helmet itself. So if you have some kid helmets kicking around the house, get in touch with the folks at Bishop Abraham Elementary. Ask for Mr. Dorn or leave a message for him so we can get the helmets required so that they can go take a whirl around the ice at the DF Barnes Arena. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. All right, let's go. Line number two. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Not too bad, Patty. Uh, I guess the ride sharing is off to a great start. <laughs> yeah, not quite. Yeah. yeah, I hear you. Patty, <clears throat> I spoke to you probably a couple of three weeks ago about like how they're changing the rules and everything for to acquire ride sharing, like to accommodate those guys and everything else. And one of the concerns that I brought up to you, and you probably remember, was about your criminal background check. And you had said that like with Uber or Lyft or whoever, with, that's what we discussed at the time before these other guys came on the scene, uh, was that they do, the companies do the background checks on the people that... that well, they hired. use a background check company. I read okay. it off the website. I can't remember the name of it now. Yeah, I think, it, I think you said it was OCS or OSE or something like that anyway. Something on the lines anyway. It's not a big deal. Uh, my concern is the provincial government here in Newfoundland and Labrador they're, they changed the rules to allow these ride-sharing companies to come in. Why don't they take the responsibility of at least checking the company's drivers and the owners, as we just seen from this Red Sea ride-sharing company, is up on alleged sexual assault charges with minors. And, I mean, I, yes, I know they, they revoked the license, but how did he manage to get the license in the beginning is my question. It's a good one. I can't answer it. Well, obviously, they simply didn't do their due diligence on that front. And the Uber criminal background check, the company's called ISB Global. I just had a quick look. Okay, I, you Googled her, did you? Yeah, yeah. ISB Global. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so, okay, so if, it's, if, if the companies are responsible to look after the drivers, the provincial government should just look at this and say, listen, if, you know, for the safety of everybody in Newfoundland and Labrador, Children, people, whoever. Because, I mean, I'm a, I'm a local taxi driver. I could get sent to a junior high school or whatever. The mom's car breaks down, dad's car breaks down. They phone, I work for Jiffy Cabs. They phone Jiffy Cabs and say, or, or use our app, which is very convenient to do, and send a cab to the school to pick up that child, right? It's nice to know that that person has a criminal background check and everything is good with them and everything else. Uh, when, like, if the government just 
take the take the time and the consideration to do the checks themselves because they're the ones that are bringing them in. The municipal government, the city hall, does it for all the taxi drivers there. I don't know why it's any different for a ride-sharing driver. It shouldn't be. I mean, whatever the best practices are for public safety so we can have faith in and feel safe and be protected when we are taking, whether it be an Uber, a Lyft, a Jiffy, or a newfound cab or a casino, whatever it is, whatever's got to be put in place to keep me safe, that's what I want to have done. Don't care what we're talking and about. And that's right. And, and that's for you and your family. And I agree 100%. Every driver, I think personally, any job that has to deal with the public, no matter if if it's if you're in a pharmacy or or wherever you're to, I think that you should have to have a criminal background check. It eliminates a lot of problems right from the get go, which could have been done here, right, with this with this uh, scenario, right. And not only that, <clears throat> Jody Wall, the PC uh, Digital Services Minister, he came on TV and he asked Studley to come on and explain. Like it, they don't even want to come on and explain what happened, or they don't want to even come on TV or on the news to explain what happened or to come on and say how they're going to fix it and make sure that it doesn't happen again. All they wanted to do, I looked at the news last night and I read some articles there, all they were happy to do was saying, well, Cabby and uh, and Uber showed interest in the license here. You know, Apparently we'll Uber's in the queue now again too, so we'll see what yeah. happens. Yes, that's right. That, that, I, I read that last night. Well, actually, I see it on the, on the news there also. And, I mean, the thing is, is that if... Like, it's like the pharmacy guy you just talked to before you. You got people on the ground looking into these industries that knows nothing about it. I've been involved in taxiing since 1982. Now, I'm dating the age here now, but anyway, it is what it is. I've been involved in taxiing since 1982. And we've always, like, it's it's to deal with the public, treat the public with respect, uh, help. Like, we're here to help. That's, That's basically what we are. And we're a public service. So, like, as far as I'm concerned, everybody should be checked, right? Like, everybody. And if you're dealing with the public, you're dealing, that's it, have a criminal background check. But you got people in there that knows nothing about the taxi industry. And, I mean, what gets me is Sarah Studley is going around like a peacock with her chest pumped out saying that, you know, oh, we've licensed a local company and a local man. Now that he's charged, allegedly charged, I should say, sorry, now that he's allegedly charged with sexual assault and child molestation, he's from Africa. Before all this was up, he was a local company, local man. Well, I mean, I, I don't really know what to say to that. If someone came from anywhere else in the world and achieves permanent residency and or citizenship and they live here, work here, spend their tax dollars here, I guess they're locals as far as technically speaking goes. I don't know what the fact is that his country of origin is elsewhere really has to do anything with the fact that the government simply dropped the ball. You know, whether he had to be from Liberia or from Bergio to not do the required due diligence is a problem, regardless. Okay, but my, th- my thing is with the Africa thing is the immigration status of it. Was this something before he got immigrated to Canada? Oh, it's, a, it's a charge that the allegations are uh, something that happened here. That's my understanding. Okay, and I mean, the thing is, it went from, uh, from 2013 to 2021, so it's been going on for eight years, according to the courts. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, it never happened yesterday. And for them, for the, for the provincial government not to notice... Like there, there's definitely something wrong, right? There's, you know, and I mean, you got the the the, the digital minister Studley, 
looking into this and everything. Where is John Abbott doing all this? He, isn't he the transportation minister? Yeah, but all of that is not under that uh, portfolio. It's absolutely at Service NL. Okay, so that Service NL, right? So, but isn't it a transportation? Like that. This is this is what I'm trying to get at. You got people involved in something they knows nothing about. You know. Yeah, but it's not trans- transportation is an infrastructure issue. Uh, service NL is you know between Service NL and the PUB, that's who's involved with the things like we're talking about this morning. Okay, like the Roger. But once yeah. it gets established and everything here, so would John Abbott be involved with it then? Then it becomes a transportation issue. Not as far as I know. No. Okay. All right. Maybe I'm, I misunderstood. I just took the word transportation. You know, the Minister of Transportation and vehicles being transportation, public transportation, like the buses and, and, and the taxis and, and the so-called ride-sharing that's supposed to be coming, you know, I just figured that he would he would be involved in it. Obviously, I'm wrong. I just have one more thing I'd like to bring up to. Quickly, yeah. Uh, I was reading an article also about the ride-sharing and everything else, and Anne-Marie Bordeaux, she's the CEO, I guess, of the Board of Trade. That's correct, right? Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's her. So, <clears throat> anyhow, she applauded... The uh, the provincial government on bringing in ride sharing, she was ecstatic about it and couldn't wait for it to happen and everything else, right? So <clears throat> she's okay with companies coming in from other provinces and sending the money out of province and taking it from the, the local taxi drivers because they're going to, you know, I mean, obviously you, you know as well as I do, they're going to they're going to cut in a percentage of of our work, right? I don't know how for how long, but with this how it all started with this uh, ride sharing. And these charges and everything, I don't know. I really can't see a lot of the public uh, looking at it as, as being a safe uh, alternative for transportation, to be honest with you. But that's up to the public to decide, not me. So exactly. anyway, she applauded the, uh, the, you know, the provincial government and the mayor and everybody else for bringing in ride-sharing, right? So it's okay for Uber or Lyft or... Or well, not so much Red Sea anymore because they're discombobulated. But say Cabby and those guys to come in and take a percentage of the taxi driver's money. That's okay, right? I'm self-employed. It's going to hurt me for sure. But when it comes to the city taking a percentage in their mill rate, their taxes going up, it was called a foul. So my thing is, the city are taking their mill rates. They put their taxes up downtown. She got on. She was all disgusted about losing. A percentage of the business. Now, she said all these local businesses are doing more with less. And that includes the taxi drivers and the operators. I guarantee you that. We're still hurting from the COVID, right? And and she said it's going to be great for the, uh, the, the tourism and everything else like that. Taxi drivers are the first face of tourism when it comes in here, right? So it's okay for... for Uber to come in here or Lyft or whoever or cabbie and take a percentage of the taxi driver's money. But it's, but it's not okay for the city, which the money will go back into the city, not sent out of province for services. That's, that's, uh, that's okay. That's not okay, right? I'm trying to figure out like where the balance lies. Is like We're local taxi drivers. We're locally owned and everything else. And she came out and said that that Every local business in St. John's and Newfoundland, or Newfoundland Labrador are doing more with less, and that includes the taxi drivers. And we're right. local guys. We're local guys with local families that are self-employed, that are trying to support everything else. But when it comes to downtown, if they take a few taxes from them, it's a foul. Points taken, Paul. I've got to get to the news, but I appreciate the time. 
Okay, Paddy, I appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's get to that news break. And stay right there, David Oxford. He's the chair of the planning committee for the 2024 Kiwanis Music Festival. He's up right after the news. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number six and say good morning to the chair of the planning committee for the 2024 Kiwanis Music Festival. That's David Oxford. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you. Happy to do it. I appreciate your patience. What, what are we going to discuss this morning? Actually, I just wanted to be able to kind of highlight, of course, the festival that we're going to be having, the 57th Annual Central Newfoundland Kiwanis Music Festival, which will be held from March 17th to the 23rd of this year, of course. And I wanted to be able to just give an idea, sort of thing, that we have registration ongoing until this Saturday, the 28th of uh, January. So we just wanted to be able to get, get people interested in being able to register both their children and even adults sort of thing as well because we always have a family and friends night in the middle of the festival on the Wednesday night so it gives basically adults children the whole nature sort of thing to be able to showcase their talent and be able to to help be able to bring I would say mental health because the thing is is that music can stimulate the mind can help allow us to feel emotions and can help calm and relax us so very much music is a very important part of our lives in the particular sort of thing being able to have children the opportunity to be able to just hone their skills and be able to improve that physical coordination as they're playing their music their skills and confidence because a child is as that opportunity to get on stage and be able to show their talent it can be a big confidence booster to know that they can get up and they can do it and then of course it's adjudicated by uh, professionals within Newfoundland and Labrador and they're given the students are given that opportunity to be able to get that adjudication from these professionals and therefore being able to know okay you can focus on this next time this was very good that sort of thing so it gives them a good idea of what they can they can accomplish and like I said the the confidence level that they can have can be a wonderful thing for a student that's trying to be able to to find themselves try to be able to to recognize their potential and I mean it's an excellent point it goes a long way if you can overcome some stage for it to perform for, for instance at the Arts and Culture Centre that goes a long way to uh, being allowing yourself to be able to speak in public as well which has really become a bit of a lost art yet it's going to be, remain important for years for, probably forever to come so inside that family and friends night David that would be not a competitive environment though right? That would be a non-competitive. Like I said, more so it just gives gives like families. Like for instance, last year we had we had children from the age of four up to adults of the age of eighty. So it just gave different uh, diverse people the opportunity to be able to just express their talent. It's not adjudicated that night. It's just meant to be more of a fun night that we can just get together and be able to show the wonderful talent that we have in the Grand Falls Windsor area. Terrific. And I so I'm mostly familiar, of course, with the St. John's Kiwanis Music Festival. But is it the same format? across the board inside this 57th edition with you know the winners moving on to junior and rose bowl competitions 
that, that's basically the same how it does. Because like I said, they have the opportunity to go, like you said, to the Rose Bowl competition and then, of course, to be able to win different awards because we have close to, in, Cent- in Central Newfoundland, we have close to 75, I believe it is, minor awards and major awards that we give out sort of thing throughout the last night of the uh, festival. And like I said, so it gives children that opportunity not only just to compete but also to be able to win and be able to know just, like I said, just the, their confidence level to know that they've done a remarkable job. I love it. And, you know, just because of our involvement at school with music, whether it be bands or choirs, we were always performing at the Kiwanis Music Festival, and it is a, a neat experience. Is there also a scholarship program in, inside the Central Kiwanis Music Festival? It is. The actual, there's, there's the, uh, the scholarship that actually the Kiwanis Music Festival, the actual club, the Kiwanis Club, yep. uh, sponsors where basically they give up to $1,000 to a student to be able to pursue their, their studies within the musical uh, education. It's got to be in an actual musical program, mm-hmm. but basically they can get up to $1,000 sort of thing to go towards that. Terrific. So how's the participation and the applications going so far this year for your festival? So far it's going very well. I'm not sure the actual numbers. I mean, years we normally get anywhere from like 350 to 500, depending upon the year, that sort of a deal. So we're, it seems as though we're on par to be able to do that. So basically, for those who want to be able to register, like I said, the, the registration deadline is, is Saturday, the 28th of, of January. And they can go to our website at kiwanisclubgfw.ca, and they basically on that website sort of thing you'll be able to see how to register and we have been unfortunately having some issues with some of the registrations so if for some reason that does happen there is basically a um an email address within the website that you'll be able to uh, look to be able to find how to get some help with that. So like I said, just to repeat, the website is kiwanisclubgfw.ca. So have numbers increased or waned over the years? I know we won't focus in on COVID because that's its own kettle of fish, but you know, a lot of this work will be done in schools with bands and choirs. Maybe some children are still able to, with their parents' support, get some private tutelage as a singer or playing the violin or the piano or what have you. So how have the numbers looked over the years? Pretty much it stayed, like, as you kind of alluded to, it kind of fluctuates sort of thing depending upon the year. Because, like I said, depending upon um, when we schedule it, there may be some other uh, um, event that maybe the students are going to be involved with and they can't do both. So it it kind of depends upon the particular year. But for the most part, that's why I say we've kind of stayed around that 350, 500 sort of thing, a registrant sort of thing. Because, of course, a a student can participate under up to 15 or 12, sorry, 12 different categories and like I said but I, I guess our deal we're finding um, in the last number of years we've introduced like uh, a couple of different new things such as Disney uh, jazz pop pop solo folk song we've you introduced some new categories so therefore it's something that the children are more familiar with we'll say so it gives them more of that that interest to be able to okay I, I'm not really sure that I can do classical I'm not really sure that I would be able to do Baroque but ba- basically then I really would like to be able to try to do Disney so like it just gives them that opportunity to still be able to participate if they so desire it sounds great how do they connect with your group to register whether it be for a scholarship and or just simply to perform whether it be the family and friends night and or in the competition well that would be the best the best i can suggest sort of thing for your listeners is to go to our website kiwanisclubgfw.ca and basically the information would be there and and or you can go to our facebook page which of course is the kiwanis club of grand falls windsor uh good luck with this year's event 
All right. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure, David. Take care. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, you're welcome. David Oxford, uh, chair of the planning committee for the 2024 Kiwanis Music Festival out in Central. Let's take a break. I uh, appreciate the time for the Information Privacy Commissioner always, Michael Harvey. It's data, it's data Privacy Week and the focus on the province's youth. Michael Harvey, after this, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning to the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner. That's Michael Harvey. Good morning, Michael. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on. Happy to have you on the program. Happy Data Privacy Week. And to you as well. I'm sure you've got it marked in your calendar. That I do, celebrated annually. Uh, so, Michael, what's the focus for you in your office this year on this week? So this year we've, uh, we've picked two priority areas to communicate about. And these are the uh, two priority areas that uh, me and my colleagues uh, all agreed upon with in joint statements in October this year when we met in Quebec. And so we're, we've also identified uh, them as priorities kind of for this province moving forward. And the first of them is the privacy rights of children and youth. Uh, our position is that this the uh, children and youth today are the first truly digital generation, you know, where you and I kind of grew up with the Internet. Uh, today's children and youth are the first generation to be digital from the moment they've been born, uh, and often from the very moment they've been born. Uh, and, uh, and they don't know an offline world. And so that means that the way that they think about their information and the online world uh, can be quite different from from ours, and uh, and we need to be aware of that, and to make sure that our our systems are respectful of their privacy rights. So, what's the implication, if that's the right word, because they are very much the digital aged children. So, what's that? What does that mean? Well, what do you mean by that? Because for some people, they're still wary of technology. They're very controlling of their privacy. Are you saying that because they've grown up with their phone in their hand and you know sharing all these pieces of information about themselves and their family, maybe images and otherwise? Is do you mean they're a bit more carefree and reckless because they don't know any different? In, in some respects, they are, and in some respects, they aren't. And, and what we're finding uh, about children and youth and what some, some academic research has found is that in some ways, they're more careful and clever about the information they reveal online than, uh, than you and I would be. Uh, in, some, in some respects, they, they have online presences that they, they, you know, what we might say they curate or they, they tend very carefully. Sometimes in one app, they'll have a certain personality and reveal certain information, and in other apps, they'll have a different personality and they'll reveal different uh, information. And, and ch today's children and youth can be very aware from a very young age about what, what information they're putting out and why they're putting it out there. But, Patty, I know that, that you've got kids, too, and my experience as a, as a father of teenagers is that uh, while they, in many respects, can be way smarter than we are, uh, in other respects, they're not quite as smart as they think they are and, uh, and are vulnerable to uh, manip uh, manipulation and uh, particularly emotional manipulation. And so this is why I think we need to be extra careful in making sure that uh, we give them the tools that they need to protect themselves online and protect their, their privacy. Uh, one of the quotes I read from you is that we're not necessarily talking about criminal and nefarious actions, but when you talk about it being emotionally manipulated, is, are there any specifics that we're going to be able to talk about? 
Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, the most obvious one, and I think we experienced this to a lesser degree when we were when we were kids, is the way that our our emotions are manipulated by corporations, uh, and uh, and they're to to essentially nag our parents to buy things. Um, now the the ability through the internet to collect micro information about our children and youth and how individual children and youth respond to different prompts and then to customize a messaging that goes back to them is is a new and dangerous development so you know uh, advertisers when you and i were young they would have known that if they showed us certain types of advertising at certain types of at certain times of day we'd nag our parents to buy us you know gi joes or whatever right but but these days uh, corporations uh, can detect the emotional state of our kids and they can uh, b- based on what they're doing uh, in and not just kids in general but individual kids and use that to target back to them uh, advertising but also you know prompts to get them to behave in in certain ways and to click on certain things to spend more time on this website than than others and this is um, this level of emotional manipulation I think is is quite quite difficult absolutely it is because you know for some they'll be more easily manipulated because they need to feel a part of something and so when you click a like or you get a like on your Instagram post you get that rush of adrenaline or pheromones that really drive you and keep you on that side and keep manipulating you and you know not to be conspiratorial but it really feels like you know data mining is is huge business and they know exactly what i like they know my likes and my dislikes even when you just go to begin to type something in on google they know what you're looking for before you your fingers are able to type out the entire sentence or request then you all of a sudden see these ads pop up regardless of the website you're on that is focused in on things that you've been talking about or searching online it's kind of eerie in some respects you know you'll go online to look about for say for instance a new winter coat next time you go back online what's the first ad you see winter coats so it is very very scary out the, the algorithms are baked into everything that we touch online so the manipulation i would suggest not only for children who might be a little bit more naive because i think that you were right to say that sometimes they're not as smart as they think they are even though i think that is also can be associated with many adults my age but they're listening they know what you're doing they know well, what buttons to push and the difference is uh, difference between is patty that you remember a time when the world wasn't like that when when the world when the tv when the ads that would come on tv obviously didn't know what you were interested in i mean if you're watching the super bowl they might have guessed that you were interested in pickup trucks but but generally speaking advertising didn't know what you were interested in uh today's children because they've grown up in this world have never known that world so they don't know that that's unusual and and that's why we need to give them the tools to to protect themselves in this digital world. So we've engaged, uh, we've started the process. We have identified this in our as a priority for us going forward uh, in a multi-year plan. We've engaged key stakeholders in the, uh, like the Department of Education uh, to uh, to talk to them about how are there ways that we can cooperate and collaborate with them to help uh, to look at at how our school system is providing those tools to kids and. Our are there ways that we can enhance those tools? I know that our, our there there is education currently going on within our schools, and we'd like to take a, a look at that and see if there's opportunities to strengthen it and freshen it up. And so I'm looking forward to uh, to talking to those key stakeholders uh, to see where we can uh, what we can do to to help um, 
strengthen uh, our, our kids uh, and to protect their rights in the future. Other than the awareness and the conversation, is there a legislative approach? You know, we could talk about crafting curriculum for in the province of schools and talk about these types of issues. And I think some attention is given to it, but probably not enough. Is there something legislatively speaking that can be done or broached or discussed? Because we can talk about all the awareness we want, whether it be, you know, weariness to drink and drive and to use drugs and to smoke and to vape. And we can put some legislation on age groups or age eligibilities in place. Is there anything on this front that you think can take the next step? Uh, in this province, these kind of matters, the protection of uh, children from privacy in the private sector is a matter of federal jurisdiction. And, and so uh, legislative changes would, ha- would, I think, be at the federal level. But I think that a lot of the legislative framework is, is in place. Uh, and I, I think that uh, or is moving ahead through Parliament now. So Bill C-27 at the federal level is a major privacy, private sector privacy reform uh, that's proceeding forward. Here at the provincial level, our focus uh, within my jurisdiction and in provincial jurisdiction is the public sector. And so we do need to take a look at how making sure that our children are safe uh, within the school system. Uh, so that's an important, going to be an important focus for us because, of course, the way that kids are educated now is increasingly online. There's lots of digital education tools that are being used, uh, like, uh, let's say, Google Classroom, but there's many others and we need to make sure that these uh, are safe and that the appropriate reviews and protections are in place to make sure that that our kids are safe in that environment really appreciate the time as usual uh, this morning michael anything else you'd like to add before we say goodbye uh, only that our other priority is employee privacy, and um, uh, I talked to uh, Linda Swain about that uh, earlier in the week. Uh, employee privacy is a is a key priority for the OIPC, and we'll be talking more about that in the uh, the months and and maybe years to come. Uh, very last question: Do you are you playing a role in the government's crafting of legislation regarding internal rules, or legislation regarding artificial intelligence? Uh, we don't have a, a – there is a, a role in legislation so that at some point, if the government intends to introduce legislation, uh, we'll have to be consulted on that. It's not clear what that consultation w- would look like. We haven't had any formal conversations with the government about that. That said, I did hear Minister Studley's uh, comments on artificial intelligence, and I was very uh, you know, very pleased to hear what she had to say. It is very consistent with what I've been talking about publicly is where we need to go in terms of internal government policies and legislation with AI. We have to move on these things. So I'm very pleased to hear the kind of things she's saying, and uh, uh, I'm excited about the possibility of, of government action in this area and, and hope to be able to contribute to that. Yeah, because she says you know government does use uh, artificial intelligence, what they call sophisticated rules-based engines, you know, compilation of government data. They don't use what you and I have discussed in the past, generative AI like ChatGPT. I was also quite interested to hear her say that the federal bill, Bill 20 C, uh, C-27, is really quite weak. That's, it's an interesting comment for coming from her, and I've tried to reach out to the federal government to get some conversation going with them about that federal bill, because when a provincial minister thinks it's weak, then it probably is, because we're also talking yeah. about a liberal minister talking about a liberal bill, so I'd like to get to the bottom of that. 
Right. So what, what I'll say is that this speaks to how fast this is moving. Uh, when that a the Artificial Intelligence and Data Act was introduced, it was well now you know uh, a little more than a year ago. Um, but now the EI the EU's AI Act has come out, and the EU's AI Act is that much stronger. A lot of this is because we're learning so fast about this. So um, you know it, the the federal legislation might look weak compared to the EU legislation, and, and you know I'm just speculating here but that may be part of the EU has had a bit more time to learn about about how to be uh, stronger certainly uh, I also admire uh, aspects of what the EU has done with their um, with their approach to AI in particular in in identifying certain no-go zones things that uh, AI is just not appropriate to be used for like measuring people's emotional states so uh, I was pleased to hear Minister Studley say that for sure yeah and different and stricter rules based on on the risk pose, you know, the different set of rules for different risk categories, which makes sense. Can have a, a catch on and pretend that you're going to incorporate all of the general concerns. And before I let you go, just for the listening public, you might not have anything to do with artificial intelligence knowingly, but unbeknownst to you, virtually everything that we see and touch and feel and talk about in the future will have some relationship with AI. So getting it right before it gets out of hand, and it almost is at this moment in time, we've got to make sure legislatures understand the risks. It could be good to begin your research as a university university student or a junior high child, but there are some distinct downfalls with AI that we've got to put some controls around, some guardrails. Good to have you on the show, Michael. Stay in touch. Absolutely. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Michael Harvey. He's the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner. Break time. When we come back, we're going to be talking about air ambulance, and then we're also going to be talking about regional economic development with Rob Nolan from MNL. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go, Leonard Once Good morning to the NDP member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. And good morning, Jordan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Yes, no, I, uh, I saw the story today. Um, I talked about the Gander Chamber of Commerce, Eric Chamber of Commerce, talked about uh, the RFP for air ambulance. And it made me want to, uh, I should call it, and also bring a perspective for, for us here in Labrador West on the concerns that we're having with the idea of privatization of the air ambulance and what does it mean for service, but also what does it mean for the delivery of service we had because we've had long and hard just to have a plane stationed in Labrador. And it took the uh, an unfortunate, uh, tragic industrial accident before government would even consider putting a plane in Labrador. So now we're talking about privatization and this RFP. What does it mean for the services that we receive? And what does it mean when you're looking at a for-profit model for healthcare delivery? So my understanding is the two hubs for air ambulance will be St. John's and one station, Happy Valley Goose Bay, right? That's correct at this time right now. But we, uh, but in the past, if you remember, um, I've advocated that a third plane was required um, in this province. It was brought up in a report uh, a number of years ago when the uh, province started acquiring their King Airs that there would, uh, that for efficiency, that the three provincially owned planes were required. And given that, you know, you look at places like, you know, and I agree, like a place like Gander. Uh, if the third place was playing with station in Gander, it gives a lot more flexibility for the province on on delivery service. Uh, I can't 
you know, the times that people have reached out to me in the, you know, in the middle of the night or days trying to figure out where a plane was to to bring a loved one from Labrador into St. John's, you know, it, it's it's been concerning. So we're, now we're looking at a private delivery model. Um, you know, where's the accountability? Where's all that going to be? But at the same time, you know, there was a solution on the table on how to adjust the air ambulance service without privatizing it. Yeah, I mean, I asked uh, Minister Osborne that question directly yesterday, talk about why St. John's versus a central location like Gander, when we're talking about logistically speaking, uh, logistic decisions, it kind of feels like Gander should be the place. The answer, and it's the second time the same answer has come, is that uh, the proximity and access to the medical flight teams, the healthcare professionals, easier done in St. John's, which I'm not really sure that I'm buying that as a catch-all excuse as to, or catch-all reason as to why St. John's would be the hub, because for most of the medical flights, St. John's would be the destination, the end destination, not the starting point. Absolutely. And, you, and, and, you know, and that's talking to both sides of your mouth, but that, with the, that answer from the minister, because there's a team and a plane in Labrador. So, so that, it, that the answer doesn't fly, because obviously, you know, we have one in, in Labrador, and the reason we had that one is because of a failure to deliver healthcare to Labradorians. And so, once again, we're looking at this this uh, this thing that we need to get people from Gander, from Deer Lake, from St. Anthony, from Goose Bay, from Labrador West, into St. John's, where the tertiary care center is. That's the reason why. Yes, if we had the three planes that was advocated for a decade ago then maybe you could have one in St. John's, you could have one in Gander, and you could have one in Happy Valley Goose Bay, and you're serving your, you know, your, your three unique areas of the province. But at the same time, with this RFP for privatization of the uh, privatization of the air ambulance system, there is no caveats in for that kind of stuff. It, it, you know, we're we're basically saying, you know, put in your bids, and you know, we'll see we'll see how it goes. But when you're asking a private company to deliver healthcare. You know what the bottom line is. It's not delivery of health care. It's a profit for their shareholders. So this is what the scary part of it for me is. They're going to be more worried about making sure that those planes make money than they are about delivering health care to Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. Yeah. I still don't really firmly understand why. I mean, Minister Osborne is actually coming on with David Diamond tomorrow morning as well. So we're going to talk a lot about procurement, but that will include this as well, because an RFP is out. So that's absolutely inside the envelope of what we've asked them to talk about tomorrow. So, and this will be back on the radar. You know, who gave the advice that the province should not be involved in owning, operating and managing fixed wing aircraft and helicopters inside the world of air ambulance? Like, why not? What's the issue here? Why does it require a public sector? entity to design, manage, operate an ambulance system when the ambulance system has been managed and operated and designed in this province by provincial government uh, bureaucrats forever. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. We have aircraft in this province. We have water bombers. We have, you know, wildlife has helicopters. We have air ambulances. Why are they breaking it up now? Is it like, you know, are we foreshadowing that, you know, are the water bombers next? Because you're going to take away, you're taking away two uh, two aircraft now that belongs to the province, and you also have your air water bomber service. Is that's what's next? Because this is the road I'm starting to look down. Because what these two planes? Why is it so crucial that the province get rid of these two planes and hand it over to uh, to private companies to make a dollar off of? That's the scary part about it. And as a Labradorian, as a person who lives here in Lab West, where I have. You know, I'm thousands of kilometers away from tertiary care. That air ambulance is our health care delivery model for me, 
for the good people of Happy Valley Goose Bay and the North Coast of Labrador and the South Coast of Labrador. That plane is very important. And if we're going to go put it in the hands of private companies to make a dollar off of, I am beyond concerned. And my residents here in Labrador West are beyond concerned. We've had our grips with the air ambulance before and how it was operated, but this is going down a dark path that I don't think we should be going down in anything. We should be improving the public service to make sure that it's in the hands for the right reasons. Fair enough. I appreciate the time this morning, Jordan. Thanks uh, a lot. Before I go, uh, sure. I just want to shout out, um, you know, uh, I, I got to campaign with Kim Churchill there uh, this past week, had a fantastic time. She's a great individual, and I just want to give a shout out to her and what she's doing, and I really hope that the people of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Conception Bay, East Belle Island, have a good consideration for her. She's a fantastic individual, and I had a wonderful time campaigning with her last week. Thanks for the time, Jordan. Thank you. Take care, my friend. You do. Bye-bye. Jordan Brown, NDP member for Lab West. You mentioned water bombers, and we have heard from the Water Bombers Association. And, you know, of course, we cur- currently there's four water bombers. There was five in the fleet, but, of course, back in September 2018, there was an accident on the South Coast, and that uh, aircraft has been out of service. Not so long ago, there was 18 pilots for five aircraft a decade ago. Now there's only eight pilots for four aircraft. They know and they realize this is not really hot button topic during the winter months but before long we know it it'll be back in the summer and wildfire season so the water bomber pilots they have themselves an issue and there's a variety of things regarding their uh, workplace and some other concerns that we'll broach with them again as we get a little bit closer to the season let's go to line number three say good morning to the ceo and municipalities newfoundland labrador that's rob nolan rob you're on the air morning patty how are you doing okay thanks how about you Good, good. Calling in to uh, talk to you about the RED Task Force, Regional Economic Development Task Force, and some work that we're doing. Sure. Before we get into some of the details of the roundtable and the workshop last year, well, this work had been ongoing for quite a while. So there was a lot of people involved, some 30 organizations, some 70 different people. But when the province moved away from recommendations such as regionalization, which came from your group and the working groups that you created, when that changed, how did that impact the focus or the effort that had been put forward prior on the task force? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the context of the RED Task Force um, was we started with um, CBDC, NL, and Harris Centre in 2022, released a report that year. And you're right, that was done um, sort of in tandem with advocacy work that we were doing uh, toward uh, regionalization, regional government uh, with the province. Um, of course, early last year, they announced, the, the province announced that they weren't moving forward with regional government. So that forced uh, a pivot. Um, so we, we, you know, in the near future, we won't have a formalized regional government um, structure. Um, so now we needed to come back to the table and discuss um, how does regional economic development move forward in a coordinated and planned way without that uh, regional government structure. So it certainly changed the conversation. Uh, but as you mentioned, there's, there's at the workshop we had in December, we had over 70 people, over 30 organizations represented. So there's still an energy in the space um, and a desire and a need to come together and uh, coordinate. Um, but without that formalized uh, regional government structure, we need to think about how do we build the structures necessary um, to coordinate moving forward. It's amazing that sometimes words will scare people off from the conversation. Like regionalization became a very bad word all of a sudden in many pockets of the province. But without a doubt, the need for coordination and working together and shared resources is going to be one of the keys for long-term survivability for many communities. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and there's lots of good regional work being done. And, um, and that's a piece of the puzzle as well. We're not starting from scratch. We're not needing to reinvent the wheel, um, but it needs to be more coordinated. And, and we need to set up the structures so um, a group of communities that wants to um, form a regional body or come together and act regionally can learn from others. So you have great examples um, going on right across the province right now. In Lab West, the Labrador West um, Chamber of Commerce is doing great work in Conception Bay Center. We um, talk a lot about the example there of the three communities that came together around um, engineering services, and now they've moved through a number of, of different projects um, working together. Gross Morin region um, is doing excellent work um, around tourism, and, and you hear that in, in, in pockets right around the province, tourism and hospitality as the uh, regional economic development um, thrust um, but there's but there's other industries, other development that can uh, be coordinated regionally, and that's exactly it. Before we um, before we uh, fine tune what's going to be done, it's about how do we coordinate, how do we plan uh, medium and longer term. Um, down in the Buren Peninsula right now, Marystown is leading a group that um, wants to make sure that communities on the peninsula. Uh, reap the economic de- de- uh, the economic benefits of new industries that are entering um, that area, and that's so important that from the grassroots up, communities are able to come together and recognize that it's a regional thing. You know, these industries don't necessarily recognize or or stay confined within municipal borders. So communities need to come together with their neighbors and and work toward common solutions. Yeah, and then there's, you know, four communities on the northern peninsula. I think it's like Concha and Glee, Main Brook, maybe Robinson Body Arm. They're working collaboratively because they see it as the only viable way forward. Then, you know, people will pluck out certain examples. Like, for instance, Fogo Island. Fogo Mm -hmm. Island is thriving, not only because of the co-op and the inn, but they have come together. The problem for other communities when you try to mimic that best practice is they may quietly say, well, we don't have a Zeta cop, you know, so the Sharefast Foundation is going to be hard to replicate where I live. But you don't necessarily need a Zeta cop. It's helpful to have someone with that type of horsepower and resources, but you don't need that. You just need the roadmap for the how-to. That's right, absolutely. And I think Fogo is an interesting example, not particularly because of Shorefast, but because of the history there. So they had, in the 60s, there was the threat of resettlement, um, and they had, you know, the numerous communities on the island at the time band together for the co-op that you mentioned. And that was 60 years ago, um, which led to a regional council in the 90s and then has led to um, the great work being done um, out there. But in the 60s, they didn't have Dezita Cobb, and they were able to band together and uh, and move forward productively. On Bonavista Peninsula is an example that we always hear about, that those communities up there are recognizing that tourism and hospitality isn't just um, linked to one community. It's linked to that region. So you don't necessarily need that. Uh, it's great to have that innovator, that, that single entrepreneur, um, but it's important to have the leadership um, in the community, in the businesses, um, and just people who are willing to come together. That's part of the, the conversation as well, that a lot of these examples that we use they have uh, an entrepreneur, an innovator, <clears throat> an innovative mayor um, who comes forward or a group of mayors who come forward and want to work together. Um, but that can change really rapidly if, when you have an election and that's changed when an entrepreneur moves out of the area, whatever it might be. So we really want to um, ensure that the structures are in place and the planning is in place that 
the, these successes can continue moving forward in, in these regions. Is there, you know, the thought about orientation for the pros and volunteers and how, how to guides to be created, is there something formal that we can put in a kit that can be, you know, won't be perfect for every single region because they all have different concerns, different shortcomings, different population base, what have you, different industries. But is MNL working towards putting something like tangible in a kit? Here's, here's a model. See if you can manipulate it to work for your region. Or here's a workshop that we're going to bring to where you are, tailored and made for your needs. Are things like that in the works? Absolutely. That's a, that's exactly where we're going. So coming out of the workshop in December, again, it was talking about the different context, but we also brought people together with the promise that everyone in the room was going to take action uh, moving forward. So it wasn't just coming back around tables and, and uh, having more discussions. It was really coming out of that with, with actions for the organizations, for the individuals around those tables. And, and you're right, that the the how-tos, the toolkits, the resources that are needed are part of what we're building out now. So we're working with Harris Center, CBDC, and Community Sector Council to develop a report of recommendations uh, or steps forward, really. How do we how do we keep the ball rolling um, out of the workshop in December? And part of that is um, toolkits, resources, um, like you said, great models, best practices that are ongoing um, that communities can learn from each other on, but also um, training. So we'll be working with um, uh, EDANL, the Economic Developers Association of Newfoundland and Labrador, to develop um, training in regional economic development. So community leaders can gain a better understanding. Um, And you mentioned volunteers. So much of this um, relies upon volunteers out in these communities. Oh, yeah. Um, So it's important for us to provide the resources and work with them um, so that that they're supported the way that they need to be in, in community. Uh, last one. So it's one thing to create all of these kits and workshops and what have you, but even when that work is done, there's still going to be some required funding to move even further down the road. So what kind of funding is actually available for this type of thing? Because this feels very niche where it might be some municipal funds, maybe some support from your organization, or maybe from Memorial University, the Harris Center, what have you. But is there any type of funding set aside for this type of work? Yeah, so there's great work and great programs that ACOA and uh, Department of IET with the province um, do. Um, but we have that mismatch that, that we talk about often of um, where the political will is isn't necessarily um, where the political power and those funding programs are. So that's part of this as well, to help communities, help um, the regions um, build the capacity so that they can avail of those funding programs from ACOA, from IET, from other sources um, that might be available. Um, because that's, that's part of the puzzle as well, that you, you might have these great ideas, you have these great partners in regions, um, but they don't necessarily have the um, capacity or the resources or they just might not know about where the, the programming is available um, to get that um, seed funding to make it happen. So um, ACOA, IET, there's other um, sources, and that's part of it as well. We'll be helping um, groups of communities come together and, and figure out how they coordinate to move forward and avail of those resources. Appreciate the time this morning, Rob. Stay in touch. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. Take care. Here you go, it's Rob Nolan. He's the CEO at MNL. Let's take a break. Amanda's there to talk about rheumatology services at St. Clair's Hospital. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. All right, let's go. Line number one. Amanda, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thank you so much for taking my call. This no problem. Morning. 
Um, as you said, I did want to talk about the rheumatology clinic at uh, St. Clair's, but more specifically, the inaccessibility of that clinic. So, um, as you may know, many people who suffer from rheumatoid arthritis are also faced with mobility issues. So they use walkers or wheelchairs, certainly, to, uh, to help them physically move about. And uh, for those of your listeners who are not familiar with the rheumatology clinic at St. Clair's, it is located in uh, the basement of the building, the uh, lower floor, and it's not accessible by the main elevators in the lobby. So when you enter the main entrance of St. Clair's Hospital, you have to uh, turn left and walk past uh, the day clinics and the day surgical procedure area, down a long hallway, turn right, go down another long hallway, and when you finally navigate your way through all of that, there are two elevators that are there in that corridor that allow you to access the clinic below. And uh, these elevators, as I said, there are two of them, and we have yet to visit that clinic, and we visit it every three to four months. We have yet to visit the clinic when both elevators are in service. There's always one out of service. And just to let you know, when you make your way onto these elevators, there's a very heavy steel door with a doorknob that you have to uh, pull outward toward a wheelchair or a walker. And when you open it up, you actually get onto the elevator, you close that large heavy metal door again, and then you slide another metal door um, to the left so that it latches, and then the elevator will move. And um, with this elevator as well, the elevator, when it uh, reaches the floor, it's not flush. The elevator itself is not flush with the floor in the hallway. And there's a significant uh, lip that one must maneuver over in order to physically get on or off the elevator. And if somebody was by themselves, it would be very, very difficult in a wheelchair to navigate that. But anyway, all that to say, elevators can be older, certainly, but when they're working, uh, the main thing is that they're operable and people can access the services they need. Well, yesterday we were at the clinic and both these elevators were out of service. We could not uh, get on either of the elevators with my mom in the wheelchair to get to her rheumatology appointment. So when I asked one of the staff members if there was another way to access the clinic, they said, well, if you follow me down this long hallway, it's another long hallway, uh, there is a small elevator, they said, at the end, and that might be working. It might be working. So we made our way down there, and um, thankfully it was operable, and we could get on there. But I had to put my mother, it was so small, I actually had to put her in on an angle to fit the wheelchair in there with me. And I'm not a large person. So uh, for, for us to fit on the elevator, uh, we had to, you know, maneuver around to get in there. And I just thought, you know, this is absolutely ridiculous in this day and age, 2024, um, to have somebody who has mobility challenges to be faced with these increased obstacles to access the health care that they need at a clinic where many of the clients that avail of the clinic uh, have mobility challenges. So I just wanted to, um, I guess, express my frustration and um, 
also just to challenge uh, your listeners, because I'm sure my family is not the only family to have this experience with that particular clinic. And just to challenge people to uh, really get out there to uh, call the consumer feedback line with Eastern Health, to have their voice heard, uh, to call your show, and just let you know our policymakers know that this is unacceptable in this day and age. And um, further, I know I'm a little long-winded here. Okay. But further to that, uh, when we actually reached the clinic, we usually see um, a physician, but yesterday we saw a nurse practitioner. And to get into her office, Patty, I had to back my mother's wheelchair in, and even then the wheels, one wheel was touching the wall on one side of the wheelchair, and the other wheel was touching the desk on the other side of the office. Like, it's just not conducive for uh, people, you know, in wheelchairs, or it would be very challenging with people with walkers as well. And it was incredibly frustrating yesterday to experience this. It's one thing to have accessibility issues in one public building or another, but it even comes across as much more drastic when we talk about a healthcare setting. I've never been to that clinic, so I had no idea of the roadmap to get to it. But it kind of sounds like you're using freight elevators versus passenger elevators. And it's unbelievable. And, and, you know, it looks like something, I'm not exaggerating, I mean, from the first time we visited the clinic, it looks like something out of a horror film. And, and I mean, the fact that you have to... Uh, you know, it's so challenging to even get on there to begin with, but when they're not working, I mean, you know, come off it in this day and age. And I know, you know, I know that they hope to replace St. Clair's Hospital and there's a plan in place for that, but that's years down the road. And in the meantime, we need to be able to access the health care that we, that we, you know, need to access to be healthy. And I just think, like, people, people really need our policymakers, our decision makers, the management, whomever needs to pay attention to this and and do something about it. And I would just like to say that the staff, the frontline staff there from the office workers to the nurse practitioner that we saw, they were so incredibly helpful and equally as frustrated because they deal with this every day with with almost every client who comes to to visit their clinic. It sounds like they absolutely, the patient absolutely needs someone to accompany them to help them navigate what sounds like a, a ridiculous path to the clinic itself and or healthcare professional might have to greet someone at the door so they can actually make their way to the clinic. Uh, not good enough. I'm glad you told me about it, Amanda. I had no idea. Absolutely. And thank you so much for listening. And uh, I really do hope that something can be done about it. Me too. Appreciate the time. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to start the final hour of the show, talk about the by-election coming up, Conception Bay, East Bell Island. Of course, voting day, the advance polls are open. There's three locations where you can take advantage of that. And, of course, the last voting day is Monday, January 29th. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to one of the town councillors in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. That's Gavin Will. Good morning, Gavin. You're on the air. Yes, uh, thank you, Patty. I'm one of the town councillors in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, who is not running for uh, in, <laughs> in the by-election. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> you have two. Well, we one who's a two, former, yeah, I right. guess, has been suspended, and that's Daryl Harding running on his independent PC. And, of course, Tina Neri running for the, uh, the PCs. Correct. That's right. I, I, I phoned you today about uh, about uh, uh, Kim Churchill's campaign. I, I could just have a couple of moments after, after to speak uh, to, to pose a question to uh, uh, 
Minister of Health, Tom Osborne. Would that be acceptable? Fire away. Okay, thank you. Yes, I, I've been, uh, as I say, I've been volunteering for uh, on Kim Churchill's campaign, and it's been truly inspiring to see uh, the job that she is doing, and. Um, and that combined with the uh, with the work that the uh, that Jim Din and the NDP have been doing uh, uh, over over the past little while has really demonstrated that the NDP is the real opposition in this uh, in this province to the to the Liberals. And we saw that this week with the with the review of uh, of healthcare and um, of the discussion of healthcare and vacancies that uh, that are so rife in the in this province. I guess for as far as I'm concerned, when, when I'm speaking to people, I say I'm telling people that you know that this uh, this by-election is a chance to send a message to the Liberal government and uh, for, for some people who are, are, are out there undecided perhaps this weekend as to how to vote. Now, I, my message is this, that if you're uh, voting Liberal will only uh, in, uh, won't do anything to, uh, to improve the lives of people in this province for you or your family. They'll just slap themselves on the back and say that they've done a great job. Voting PC, the Liberals can say, well, we kind of expected to uh, to, to lose that seat to the uh, to the PCs. They've had it for uh, for 20 years, but voting NDP sent an entirely different message. It did. It, uh, that'll say, it'll, it'll send a message that uh, that they, that we expect better from this uh, from this government, and that basically that what we want we want real doctors. We don't want spin doctors, and that's what we've been getting. So, what's the question for the minister? Sorry. And uh, yeah, and speaking of uh, uh, Spain doctors, doctors, I do have a question for the minister regarding uh, the, the the review of long-term care, which was promised uh, last year. This was this followed. You may remember that I had a uh, that that I was in the news quite a bit, speaking of the separation of my parents uh, who, who were in uh, personal care home. Yes, I've spoken to that on the show. Yes, that's that, that is that is correct. And uh, and the end result was that my father died without uh, his, his wife of 63 years by his side. So uh, and after a few months after that, the uh, the minister uh, launched a uh, a review of, of long term care and said and that was February last year and promised to have a report and recommendations in by the in within quote six to eight months and uh and if we do the basic math that should have happened uh, already and uh and, and so and uh, and so the and the minister actually said that he wants to uh, to look at things such as quote spousal separation. We'll look at best practices outside the province as well as as well as in the province. So my question to the minister is: Where is this review of long term of long term care? Why is why was it not delivered on time? And uh, and is this government going to do anything to keep uh, senior couples together? when they were in care. Interestingly, uh, Minister Osborne was on uh, yesterday. I asked him that exact question. So, you know, in reference to separating couples, you know, I did make reference to the fact in Nova Scotia they've dealt with it via legislation. He says they're trying to improve upon what they've done in Nova Scotia because in, in that province, it's basically trying to ensure that the couples that are separated are in facilities as close to each other as possible. The minister said yesterday they're hoping to come up with a way to keep couples in the same facility. I did ask about the status of the review of personal care and long-term care beds and he says that that is coming he could not give me a date but i asked him those two exact questions yesterday 
Well, it's very interesting because uh, this was promised uh, within, as, as I said, six to eight months from last uh, from last February, and, and we still don't have a, a date. So why is it taking so long? Yeah, and of course, you know, you would hope that that review would be all-encompassing, whether it be staffing to patient ratios, the roles of supervisors, the, the dementia wards, safety of the patients, separation of couples, also what looks to be the overprescription of antipsychotic drugs. I've mentioned that here on this uh, show many, many times, but way above the national average. The percentage of patients who are living in restraints, way above the national average once again. We'd like to understand whether that's a staffing issue or a protocol issue or somewhere in between. So I hope that all of those and more, whatever people say, suggest should be included in that review I hope they are because that needs to be really comprehensive 50% of the population of the province are 50 plus 25% of the population here in Newfoundland Labrador are 65 plus so getting it right and not you know add to it it's not just institutional care it's how we care for the forecasted numbers of dementia patients and those numbers are startling the things that we could or should be doing to keep people in their home longer if and when they choose to do exactly that so there's a lot to the aging conversation we try to broach it as best we can on the show but of course there's a lot to it so i, I need is. and appreciate people's input thank you very much i appreciate your time okay you too patty thank bye-bye you. here we go I, i'll try to get to the break on time before we squeeze the next caller up against the break you know so there's two very different conversations regarding aging yes there's been national conversations and maybe some tax credit support and so expansion of home care if people are able to stay in their own home where many people want to be you know, familiar surroundings, the comfort of being in your own home, close proximity to your family and friends, likely, versus some people are going to need to be in a long-term care facility based on medical needs that maybe cannot be attended to appropriately in the home. So I know they're two different conversations, but again, everybody's different. Some people want to do exactly that. They want to stay in their own home. Some people, based on medical needs and or loneliness, may indeed choose to try to get into a long-term care facility but that one issue of separating couples we've got to figure that out because that's just way too sad i mean i'm not sure if it was gavin's parents but there was another story in the media where basically i can't remember if it was the man or the woman the husband or the wife they thought that the other had left them right they weren't there anymore and they thought they'd been abandoned just imagine that you know, spend a life together and maybe with some declining faculties, you know, when separated, think that your husband left you after all these years. What did I do? Just imagine, you know, having to try to be the son or the daughter or a family friend of someone who's feeling like that as they age in a, a, a long-term care facility. Amazing stuff. Uh, let's take a break. Can we come back? Mental health and addictions. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good, good. Um, sent an email late last night. However, I just spoke to your producer there, and uh, you probably didn't get a chance to read it. However, um, I emailed in with regards to um, mental health and addictions and trying to get some, um, I guess, help through them. So I, I guess I'll give you a bit of a recap. I have a daughter that's 22, so the last five or six years she's been um, dealing with some mental health issues as well as uh, excessive drug use. So <clears throat> we've been after her for a while, for years, to you know, to to get some help, admit what what her problem is, to no avail. However, several days ago, she did finally reach out, admitted that she has some major issues with regards to drug use and and really needs professional help. Um, so we put the ball in play and we reached out to the local hospitals and the mental health counselors and stuff. And they did an assessment of her and they 
gave her a um, a number to call, which is a, I think it's called the Detox Center in St. John's. And because of the state of her uh, mental health and addictions, they told her <clears throat> there will be no waiting list. She will get in right away and re- start receiving professional treatment. However, <clears throat> when she did call the after assessment and she did call the detox center, <clears throat> excuse me, she was advised that sorry, there's there's uh, no bids available and there's we can't accommodate you, and for her to keep calling back at noon every day to see if something's available and that they can fit her in. So <clears throat> we keep going back and forth between mental health and addictions and the detox center. One one side of them, the counselors are telling us there's no waiting list. They don't know what they're talking about. But the detox center says, oh, absolutely, there's waiting list. We can't get her in. So we're stuck in limbo. And now she's currently staying with her aunt that's keeping a close eye on her. But given the mental state and the drug state that she's into, we're, we're you know, really worried that she's going to relapse and start going back down the wrong road again. So we're really stuck in limbo and really don't know what to do or, or, or how to reach out, right? It's extraordinarily sad to me that when people, you know, come to acknowledge that they do need help and we're unable to help them because every day that passes heightens the risk of her falling back into whatever uh, addiction she was falling prey to. So I, these stories come across my desk every single day absolutely yeah like i said we we were fighting for five or six years to try to get to her get her to admit and blah 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 and uh, finally she did and here we are you know uh stuck and have no idea what to do next i wish i could just say well here's where i would go here's what i would do because and i'm glad you sent your email and i apologize for not replying i simply didn't get to it this morning was particularly busy in the email so when I try to help people on this front, I run into the same roadblocks you do. And it becomes not only disheartening, but extremely frustrating to be told that there's a bed available at one detox facility or another, or one rehab facility or another, just to call them directly to be told there's a wait list. So exactly. it, it's simply not good enough that there's not you know, an understanding, a connection between the left hand and the right hand to give people accurate information. Because if one phone call, you're told that given the state of your daughter, you're going to be able to get help right away. That gives you some initial relief you can communicate that to your daughter who knows okay i need the help now i'm going to get the help and then the very next phone call you're right back to the beginning you know because telling someone to call every day at noon to see if there's an opening that doesn't feel like adequate approach to health care and or addiction treatment because that's more like the do you have a hotel room available so it just feels a little bit callous now i know there's only x number of beds but for the government now maybe things will improve when the new mental health and addictions facility opens on the health health science complex i don't know but we can only hope that things do improve but to not be able to understand and acknowledge the issues regarding mental health and addictions are growing and to not accommodate the growth and get people help it comes with an emotional toll a societal issue potential for further interaction with the healthcare system maybe interaction with the criminal justice system all things that are bad all things that are expensive and all things that are not part of a well-functioning society absolutely agree and and the issue is becoming massive not only in bigger centers but i mean also in the small towns with low populations it's massive everywhere crime rate is up um everything is up right breaking entries stealing everything but i mean it's very disheartening to uh you know even as as of yesterday i was there yesterday when she actually called the center and you know uh, nothing against the center or anything but very cold hearted 
I, it's such and such calling. I'm wondering if, uh, you know, I have a, a detox issue I need to get in. My assessment's done. Nope, sorry, no bids. Call back tomorrow. Click, hang up, right? So there's nothing. So then we call back the counselor in the mental health and addictions, and, oh, no, call them again. There's beds available. So, it, you know, it's it's the back and forth, and it's it's amazing. Like, to get to this point after all these years, now your hands are tied, and, you know, she's even talking about, well, if I can't get up, I might as well just go back on the streets. So, you know, it's, I, I just don't know. <laughs> I wish there was a magic wand or something you could shake, but this is real-life situation. I'm, I'm living it. My family's been living it. She's living it. And it's on the news, it's on the radios, it's TVs, advertisements all the time, but all this help and, you know, and, and they make it seem like it's an immediate help. And one side is telling us there is immediate help, but the actual detox centers are saying, sorry, there's not. Is it a requirement to get into treatment to have a formal visit to a detox center or do they allow people to do it on their own? Because I, I know I know someone that went to Humberwood on the West Coast and they mm-hmm. detox in place at home for three days before they were allowed to come in. And I don't know how they prove whether or not the detox has been accomplished, but is that something that's available before she gets a formal treatment? I have no idea. There was nothing discussed like that at all. And you mentioned Humberwood. Um, that was one of the facilities that one of the counselors and doctors tried to get her into, but there's a eight to 10 week waiting period yeah. on the books. And this is why they put us onto the de- actual detox center in St. John's because there is no waiting periods. Um, but there is. <laughs> but there is. Yeah. I, I wish that I could simply say, here's what you need to do. But what I can do is I do know people that are working in this field, uh, both in St. John's and in other couple of parts of the province. I'm going to make a couple of calls after the show, see if they can give me some advice that I can pass along to you. And if anyone listening to the program can chime in with their own personal lived experience and or someone that belongs to them, and maybe we can get you some additional supports or point you in a better direction. Whatever I can do, I'll try to, I'll try to do. Absolutely. Greatly appreciate, Patty. I wish you and your family nothing but the best. Hopefully, we'll get you some information. Okay. Thank you. Take you, care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You know, one of the toughest things is for someone to want to go get the help. And that's the biggest hurdle for most. And when they come to that realization or acknowledgement to not have it there is just really not good enough. Okay. Ch- change the tune a little bit. Let's keep going. Let's go to line number four and say good morning to the president of the St. Andrews Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Tanjin Berry. And good morning to you, Tanjin. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning. How are you? Doing okay. How was the pronunciation? Close? Uh, Very close. It's Tanjin. Tanjin. Welcome to the show. And not a problem. Thank you. The bloody Scots with those tricky names. (laughs) (laughs) Tanjin, let's go. Happy Robbie Burns Day. Happy Robbie Burns Day. It is the 265th anniversary of the birth of Robert Burns. In 1759. So before we get into Robbie Burns and how Robbie Burns Day is celebrated, predominantly this province is British, English. Then there's pockets of French and pockets of Irish and, yes, pockets of Scots. Do we have any idea how much of Scottish heritage is here in the province? Um, well, in all honesty, in grade eight, my daughter had to do their heritage background, and she actually found an awful lot of information. The The railway was uh, developed by Scots. A lot of the merchant downtowns were of Scottish ancestry years ago. Um, we do have a St. Andrew's Church downtown. Um, so there, there's, there was a fair number. I'm not sure how many people would 
stick to that recognition of that being their background these days, you you see a lot more of it that faded more towards Nova Scotia and, and Ontario, that sort of thing. But there were a lot of Scots that came to this province. Oh, for sure. I was just wondering if we had some sort of idea about percentage of the population with Scottish heritage. Like, we have some of those numbers regarding English and Irish and French, what have you. But let's dig into Robbie Burns. Amazingly, whether you refer to him as the plowman, poet, or the national bard, a short life but a major league impact. Scottish television even uh, voted him as the most, uh, the greatest Scot of all time. Even greater than William Wallace, which is pretty interesting. I don't think many people are uh, aware of the fact that All Lang Syne comes from the Scottish text of a, a Robbie Burns poem. So there's a lot to it. How does your organization celebrate today? Um, normally, we used to in the past, where this this year we don't have anything going, but normally in the past we always had a Robbie Burns supper. Um, so we would host uh, a supper at a venue around the city. We would have a haggis and um, some scotch whiskies. They, we would have pipers. We were always um, visited with by the um, Newfoundland Highland uh, Band, or the, sorry, the Newfoundland Pipes Band, and we had some Newfoundland Highland dancers that would come in, and we have the Royal Country Scottish dancers that are here. We would have a haggis that would be piped in. We would have the toast to the, the ode to the haggis, which is a Robbie Burns poem, the Selkirk Grace, which is also a Robbie Burns um, rendition, and then we would have have supper and an immortal memory where we would talk about some of his poetry or a little bit about of his wildlife that he is fabled to have had with all his love of the ladies and, and love of the land. So after the piping in and the host would offer some thoughts on Robbie Burns, then with the Selkirk Grace, did you, was that part of your formal dinner? Yes, we would. We would we would start our meal with the, with the Selkirk Grace and then everyone would eat and afterwards we would... Um, Enjoy generally some music and and uh, more renditions of, of poetry from from Robert Burns and then have a Kaylee, so a bit of a dance afterwards. Sounds about right. So, do you folks refer to it as the Selkirk Grace or the Covenanters Grace or the Galloway Grace? We call it the Selkirk Grace. Okay, great. Uh, when it comes to the uh, soup part of the menu, what do you serve? Is it the the Colin Skink or the Kakaliki or potato soup or Scotch broth? We did more of a, of a cockaliki here. Um, the colored skink is a fish soup, and although our Newfoundlanders like their fish soup, we, we generally tried to tone it down to be something that almost everyone would like. And then we generally had a, a, a steak pie that went along with it, and we'd always have the haggis and the, the potatoes and the, and the turnips, so the meats and tatties, tatties that went along with the haggis as well and we'd offer people the steak pie just in case they weren't as fond of the haggis people get a little bit scared of that i was going to say you say you're trying to have something on your menu that everyone likes but yet you serve haggis (laughs) haggis is a most wonderful dish i I don't mind it to tell you yeah, I've had it once. It's really quite nutty. The texture might take some getting used to, but I didn't mind it at all. I was very fearful of sitting down to have some, to be honest. Well, well, that's it. And people are are scared because they keep saying, well, you know, it's the, it's the weird stuff made off of leftover meats cuts. Well, so is most of your sausage or your wieners. And I mean, people talk about wieners, but a lot of people eat them. It's, it's just the off cuts or, or some of the organ meat that come from the sheep because... Back in the day, no one wanted to waste anything. You mix it with onions and um, some spices and some groats, which are a harder form of oats. They're not quite the rolled oats, soft oats. Put it inside a sheep's stomach, um, which is just a natural casing. We, we use natural casings for sausages all the time. Boil that up and add it. It's got some suet in it, so it's got a little bit of fat in it. It was really a wonderful meal. And the sheep's pluck? 
sheep's pluck. So it's the, the it's generally the heart, lungs, uh, liver of the sheep. Um, some people throw in the kidney, um, but it was all the typical organs that weren't necessarily used or were used for stews and soup sort of things. I mean, they never wasted anything on the animal. And and that's just what it was made out of, and it was all housed together in the sheep's stomach. I think the original word haggis was not the way we spell it today. It was H-A-G-W-S or something like that, and it was English. But, of course, it's very much referred to as Scottish. It's the national dish of Scotland. When we read Robbie Burns' poems, of which there are some extremely famous poems, uh, is there anyone involved in the St. Andrew's Society here that speaks the Scots dialect? Oh, um, we had we had several people that first lady that comes to mind is is the lady who actually I get my haggis from um, Jennifer Whitfield she's she's known around town as the haggis lady um, and she's originally from Scotland uh, so when she she can read through those words a lot better than I can I was born and raised in Saskatchewan I uh, my heritage is and um, background ancestry is Scotland but I'm certainly Canadian and Flatlander Canadian at that, so I can't say most of those words. I don't imagine anybody has a 1786 edition of the Kilmarnock Editions, but uh, is that book kicking around your group? Um, I don't have a 1786. No, no, no. Of course not. A reprint. <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got several reprints of um, several of uh, Robert Burns's works. I really appreciate the time this morning. Would you like to leave us with any final thoughts, whether it be on the menu or a poem that you would suggest? The one that uh, someone referred to me to this morning was uh, Flying of Dunbar and Kennedy. Oh, yeah. Well, my, my favorite goes back to Love is Like a Red, Red Rose. And it's, it's, just, it's just one of my favorite um, Robbie Burns poetry. And if you want some entertainment, you can read Tama Shanter, which is really about a gentleman who's had a little bit too much to drink at the local pub and is wandering home past the haunted church and uh, sees a lot of visions. What's the name of your favorite poem again? I'm sorry? Love is like a red, red rose. Love is like a red, red, red rose. rose. Okay, it's terrific to have you on the show. Happy Robbie Burns Day to you. Happy Robbie Burns Day to you too, and thank you very much. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. Bye. Here we go. It's uh, Tangin Berry, or Tangin Berry, He's president of the St. Andrew Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. <clears throat> oh, my love's like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. Oh, my love's like the melody that's sweetly played in tune. As fair as thou, my bonny lass, so deep I am, so deep in love am I, and I will love thee still, my dear, till the seas gang dry, till the seas gang dry, my dear, and the rocks melt with the sun. I will love thee still, my dear, while the sands of life shall run. And fare thee well, my only love, and fare thee well a while, and I will come again, my love, though it were ten thousand miles. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning, too. I'm doing okay. How about you? Not too bad. I just wanted to quickly speak to uh, the gentleman that called in a couple calls ago regarding his daughter finally admitting and wanting to seek help. Uh, it really hit home with me because I was one of those very callers for over a week trying to get in there. And when you're in a, a state of addiction or in a suicidal headspace or with all these things adding up, having to call every single day in the hopes of getting in so they can save your life is a torture. And then to find out that, no, sorry, we don't have a bed for you. Go do what you keep been doing, which is literally just trying to survive and call back tomorrow. And who's in the right mind is trying to get in a detox center and 
is able to keep calling every day. Like nobody's just sitting by the phone at 12 o'clock saying, hey, I want a bed. Is one available? It, it, there should be a waiting list or something so you at least know where you stand and it's not this roll the dice every day. I got worse, actually, in terms of every day I would call my anxiety, my suicidal ideations, even my, my alcoholism. It was just on the brink of death's door and it, it just made it worse the way it, you get into this detox center. Great facility. The workers there are phenomenal. The only issue I have is how people seek the help to get in there. there there's not a number system. It's the, the court-ordered people get in there faster than the people that finally admit they need help, want help, and might die if they don't get the help and need a bed. But yet, you know, somebody in court, oh, you got to go detox for 10 days and go to Humber Ward for 30 days. That's not fair either. They're wasting our spots in the system, and eventually, you know, where does it end? I'm not sure your thoughts on that, but uh, it just really hit home, and I just want to say to them, keep trying, keep calling. You will get in. Hang in there. Keep your family close, and hang on. Uh, those are my thoughts. So I'm not sure what to add to it versus what I said to the caller and to acknowledge what you're saying is exactly where my headspace is. Again, and I'll just leave it at this. When someone takes that final step and says, okay, I know I need some help. That might be a fleeting moment in time. So to not be able to pounce on it and to get the help as quick as possible, if not immediately, is really taking a, a sincere risk with that person changing their tune tomorrow because that might not be their headspace for the long term. So whatever we have to do to acknowledge the prevalence and to understand that we need X amount of services increased for mental health services and for addiction treatment, we're falling behind. I mean, we're seeing the stories. Generally speaking, these types of issues flow from west to east. And if we're uh, following along with what's happening in other provinces and the fact that they're playing catch-up and their numbers are quite drastic the numbers are increasing here you got to get out in front of these things planning for the future based on the trends it's got to be part of a sound government policy and i think we're falling a little bit behind here or even if uh, maybe little is probably the wrong descriptor yeah we we've we've dropped the ball huge and uh i don't know why we don't have at least four more of those facilities that's in pleasantville because I, it, how many calls do they get a day with turning down people? And how many people haven't made it into the recovery system because their addiction or their suicide or whatever got them? Or some people might one day want to change really badly, and then the next day something happens or their mindset changes, and we just lost them to, to their addiction, right? So yeah, I don't know what else to say. I wasn't one of the ones that could detox at home. I needed the medical supervision. I need. Uh, I would have died at home. I would have went to seizures. So some people are literally at death's door, need the medical help. And I honestly also feel that there's people using these facilities, and it's almost like a revolving door for them. And where is the cutoff? I'm not trying to leave people out, you know, with their addictions, but there has to come to a point. You've been there 10 times. Now this poor girl doesn't have a spot because you're there filling it again. Where does it end to? You know what I mean? It's, it's a fair question, and I... I don't know the answer to it, but especially if someone, I don't know how you even prioritize who gets the beds first, but for someone who's taken their first swing at it and has come to the realization for the first time, that feels like someone who should get that bed to me. Uh, I appreciate you making time for the show and the call this morning. Would you like to say anything else quickly? Uh, just keep up the great work, Patty, and everybody keep your families close. And uh, to that caller, keep calling. You will get your daughter in. Hang in there. Here, here. Patty. Thanks for this. Bye-bye. Bye. Boy, oh, boy. Uh, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's see if we can get through a few here before we run out of time. Line number two. Craig, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. You? 
Not too bad, I guess. Um, I just want to make a couple of comments. I heard Minister Osborne on your show yesterday morning, and he talked about having seniors couples together into one home instead of being spread out all over the eastern region, put it that way. Yep. I'm a, I'm a retired uh, nursing staff from long-term care. I worked in long-term care all my life. And this has been an ongoing thing for the 27-plus years that I worked in long-term care. Uh, staff fought for it, administrative fought for it, nursing supervisors fought for it. On the odd occasion, we would be able to pair them up. But there were times that there were one in a couple in placentia, another one in here, which made a very terrible situation for both, both of the people plus all their family members. It was atrocious. So I don't know where the government is going to start to in this. Mr. Osborne says it's going to be something done. He doesn't want to follow the Nova Scotia um, system that they have up there. But, it's, I mean, in the latter part of life, I think all the couples should be together if it's at all possible in one nursing home. Yeah, now I don't know exactly how that works, whether or not, you know, we purpose build some facilities for exactly this, you know, with varied medical needs inside a long-term care setting. I don't know how many rooms or beds we would need to accommodate the numbers of couples that would be entering in and around the same time. But whatever needs to be done, it just seems so critically important to me. The stories are heartbreaking. Imagine the wife or the husband saying, he left me. Or she left me. You know, they're in certain stages of dementia, and that's their lot in life. That's what we're doing. Oh, my God. I just don't know what to say. Now, I do I do understand that the facility that I worked in, in my career, we only had so many double rooms. And, and that can be a problem. But maybe government needs to look at it and say, we'll save so many rooms in each facility, whether it's in St. John's, Placentia, Carbonier, wherever the case might be, that we can use just for couples only. Yeah. Because there, there's definitely a need for it. I saw it all in my career, and we fought for it. Only for our social workers and our administrators and our nursing staff, it wouldn't even happen the times that I did see it happen. But when it does happen, I mean, there's euphoria, both on the nursing staff, on the families, the whole works. Like, a, a break your heart. Absolutely. So we're keenly awaiting the uh, the finished report about the review of long-term care and wondering whether or not that's going to be an adjustment that can be made, legislatively speaking, or public policy, uh, hopefully sooner than later. But there's a lot to that review, and I really need to get a look at that soon so we can start working on improving the system. Yes, totally agree. Uh, if you don't mind, I just want to bring one more point up uh, to Mr. Osborne. I hope he's listening. Uh, three weeks ago, my 86 mother, 86-year-old mother-in-law went to the health science via ambulance from multiple medical problems. Uh, she had to stay on a gurney in a hallway at the health science in emergency. I'm, I'm not going to elaborate on um, what she had wrong, but it was pretty serious. I emailed Mr. Osborne over three weeks ago and haven't had a response from him. And that's typical, I think, uh, uh, of the liberal government right now. That's sort of sort of peed me off because when you're talking about an 86-year-old lady that was on a gurney in emergency at the Health Science Center, she had a couple of infections which made her a bit confused. Family had to stay in the parking lot at the Health Science to get updates. Weren't even allowed to stay with her. I've been there. I can picture yeah. in my mind's eye my father quite unwell on a gurney in a hallway and I was not only heartbroken, I was furious. Yeah, and we were too and I, and. I'm not blaming any of the staff in the health science. They're absolutely fabulous, no problem whatsoever. But the system, 
for lack of a better word, the system needs to be overhauled big time. We can't let this happen to our seniors, not only our seniors, but any member of Newfoundland and Labrador in our hospitals. Like, totally, totally shocking. But at least he could have sent an email back whether he reads them. I guess he don't because he never got back to me, which which is not a surprise. But the system does need to be overhauled, Patty. There is no doubt about that. That it does. I appreciate the call this morning. All right, thanks, Patty. You have a great day. You too. Take care. All right, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, another question for the minister. And, of course, uh, Minister Osborne and David Diamond are going to be on this program early tomorrow. So if you have a question that you'd like me to put to them, I'll do my level best. Line six. Agnes, you're on the, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. And I haven't been talking to you for a while. Welcome back to the show. So, anyway, another question for Minister Osborne. i got two, two things I want to run by you. In December... I, as I mentioned to you before, I don't have a family doctor. So in December, I had a health issue. As you know, I'm a cancer patient and, and that. Yep. So I called the drugstore to see if I could get meds, but they couldn't address what was wrong with me. So I ended up calling 811. And of course, I spoke to a person. She said a nurse practitioner or somebody will get in touch with you shortly. So I hung up the receiver, and I wasn't two minutes. My phone rang. Another person came on the, on the phone and said, you know, would you tell me your problem and give me your MCP number? I did that, hung up the phone. A few minutes after that, my phone rang again. Another person said, would you tell me your problem and give me your MCP number? I received altogether one phone call I spoke to a person. I received three more phone calls before I got my prescription sent in for the emailed whatever it faxed the prescription into the drugstore. So I'm just wondering, is that four people getting paid for that one call? So it's something for Minister Osmond to think about. So that was one issue I had. The other issue is as I said to you, I don't have a family doctor. I'm 80 odd years old. I'm a cancer patient. And yesterday morning, I was supposed to have, I've been waiting three years for a knee replacement. Yesterday morning, I, of course, I was up all night thinking about the surgery coming up. I left my apartment in Pasadena uh, around 6 o'clock because it was really stormy. The roads were slippery. Got to the hospital, got registered. Ten minutes before my surgery, they came in and sorry, your surgery is canceled today. We're canceling, like, and well, then how come I need my surgery? I've been waiting three years, and I'm crippled. I need my surgery. Well, we don't have a bed, and we don't have anyone to look after the people that got to stay in. So, I mean, I've, I have spoken to the political people, persons, in that few years back, and it's been brought to my attention that right now the government is spending more money than they ever spent in their life on health care. And we all know that there's less people in Newfoundland and Labrador. I mean, a lot of businesses have closed up. Different things have closed up. So if there's more money, less people, how come our health care is the worst that it's ever been? I mean, I'm 80 odd years old. I have never seen it so bad. So this that's my question for Minister Osmond. 
Yeah, so I'll try to craft those uh, the best I can for the minister. Things like cancelled surgeries, it's always difficult to get any information from a cabinet minister on those types of operational issues. Maybe Mr. Diamond might be able to field that question a little better. And of course, there's always different reasons why some surgeries might be cancelled, as frustrating as that is, Agnes. I hope you're doing well. I appreciate the call today, and stay tuned tomorrow morning to hear from uh, the minister and Dave Diamond. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Take care. You too. Okay, bye-bye. See if we get two more. Uh, line three, Raylene, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Um, I just want to let you know that our adult son has been dealing with addictions and mental health issues for years now. And when I could not get any sense of any resources here, I called up uh, the Center for Health and Wellness in Ontario. York, Ontario. So we now have, I had to sell my car. We have a lien on our home. And luckily, um, his nan was able to help out because all told, between plane tickets and the the fees for two months and what have you, it was $50,000. So the thing is, I often see people going around that are obviously lost souls and aren't getting any help. So at the end of the day, all we do all these time, all these days, everybody just talks about everything. The government's not helping. So we're all in a vicious circle. And at the end of the day, as we all know, money talks, BS walks. If you got money, you can get help. If you don't have money, Nobody cares. That should never be the way when we're talking about uh, illness and addiction. Uh, but mm-hmm. I'm sorry to hear your story. $50,000 is a pretty steep price tag when we're talking about the availability or the lack thereof here in this province to get help when you need help. It's it's hard on the head to hear all these stories, but they're very yeah, real. And, <clears throat> and I mean, the thing is, is that you can't suck blood from a turnip. I was just fortunate enough to be able to uh, get a loan company to agree to give me money and put a lien on my home. And my car was relatively good, so I was lucky that way. And then we had some financial support from his grandmother. But the thing is, is that nobody cares because nobody, they always talk about transparency and accountability. I've never seen this world so full of crap in my entire life. Because the bullshit that goes on, or sorry, the BS that goes on, and who's accountable? And on that front, you know, another question would be, what does accountability look like? And how do we ensure that it, it, it happens or it takes place or whatever the right word is? Raylene, I appreciate the time uh, for the program this morning. Thanks for the call. Okay, no problem. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Very last word goes to Mike on four. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. What's your question? I got several there, but anyway, uh, I put in numerous complaints to the CPO, Chief Purchasing Officer, about Commerce Group not going to tender. And Heather Tizard, the CPO, replied that the tendering laws, rules, and regulations were only guidelines, and the Commerce could do whatever they want to do. So, in other words, from what I got from her is that there are no laws, rules, regulations, punishable, or any repercussions from anyone breaking the tendering laws. Okay, I can ask why it didn't go to tender. No problem. 
Yeah. And uh, if you'd like to add more questions, Mike, simply we clear 12 o'clock. If you put them in an email and send it along, I'll try to incorporate them tomorrow morning. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I got here, too, is Quick. that there's a review done by the Eastern Health and the Compass Group. John Hagee was supposed to release it just after uh, COVID hit. It was never, ever released. So where is it and when is it going to be released? What's the report on? Sorry, I had an interruption in my headset. On the uh, productivity and the costs and everything that was supposed to be there with relation to before the Compass Group took over and after the Compass Group. All right. I'll put the, put those in an email again for me, Mike. I, I'm out of time this morning, so I look forward to your note. Uh, one, just one quick thing. Mike. I'm going to report on uh, January the 30th to the Supreme Court to get copies of the Compass Group contracts and that stuff released to the public. And uh, there's some other, other issues in there. So if anybody is interested... On Tuesday, January the 30th, they can attend court and witness of what's going on or whatever. And I welcome okay. anybody to support. Okay, thanks, Mike. All right, we're out of time. Uh, good show today. Big thanks to all hands who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. Right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.